Welcome to the Beyond the Reef podcast, where I talk to experts and researchers in the reef aquarium hobby, discussing a broad range of topics from corals and reef biology to water chemistry and equipment. We take a deep dive into our guests' methods, techniques, and top reef keeping tips. My name is Adam Sutherland, and I am the owner-operator of Frag Garage Corals, based out of British Columbia, Canada. Hey guys, what's up? I got an awesome episode for you today. I am super excited for this one. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jamie Craggs of the Coral Spawning Lab. You can go to coralspawninglab.org to check them out. But we're going to get into some super crazy depth on the kind of corals he's been spawning, many of the world's firsts that have been spawned and raised in captivity. Uh, we're going to go over all of the stages of development. And we're actually going to do a follow-up episode about the methodology because even though this is probably the longest episode we've done, uh, we didn't even get through probably half of my questions. I definitely recommend that you watch this one on YouTube if you're just a listener. There's a ton of slides and videos and content that go along with the conversation, but it should make mostly make sense otherwise. And as per usual, please hit that subscribe. That's probably one of the best things you can do for me. Like and share and comment. Let me know what you think. And if you want to directly support us, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash beyond the reef podcast. And again, I'd like to thank Bobby Heath for being our number one supporter. And we're going to keep this podcast ad free as long as we have your support. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jamie Craggs from the Coral Spawning Lab. Well, uh, <laughs> I got Jamie Craggs. Can I call you the uh, Coral Daddy? <laughs> if you like yeah go okay coral daddy i guess you're almost dr coral daddy hey yeah yeah i think so you know well the the phd is done a few years ago now yeah so, oh it uh, is okay yeah. awesome cool yeah so you yeah, are dr yeah. coral That's, daddy uh, that... yeah exactly <laughs> awesome well um i was hoping you could just give me a little background on how you got to this stage that you're at right now i know you did some work at the london aquarium and that kind of got you into working with coral and that was kind of your your gateway i guess yeah yeah i mean i started in public aquariums 25 years ago now which is a little depressing getting a bit gray and losing their hair these days but um <laughs> yeah started at london london aquarium as a as a coral aquarist and slowly worked my way up um sort of specializing corals and coral husbandry all of the career um and I did a little bit of work out in Borneo as an underwater cameraman. So I took a break from public aquariums for about a year working as a cameraman and then um, came back to it, worked in the sort of industry side. So worked uh, for a commercial company called, at the time they were called New Era Aquaculture. Now it's Vitalis, the, the mm -hmm. food, okay. food yeah. company or, or World Feeds, they're called as well. Um, yeah. And then became the curator at the Horniman Museum of Gardens, which is where I still am. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been there 15 years. And yeah, I mean, corals, like I say, coral husbandry has always been the, the thing that I've specialized in. But um, I suppose if I had this itching desire nearly all of that time to try and focus on reproduction. And, mm. I, you know, it's only been from the fact that, you know, the, 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 the technology that we now have access to is just completely changed the the way we can keep our, our systems, right? Um, and I've been working in the field. I've, I've done quite a few field trips working with coral spawning in the field, so mm -hmm. learning the techniques of how to collect the gametes and do the in vitro fertilization, 
And then I kind of ran out of grant money, so I couldn't keep doing that. And I thought, I, I, I need to try and figure out how to spawn corals in an aquarium. Mm-hmm. And that, that's that's where the journey started, sort of 11 years ago. Um, sat at my kitchen table reading a tweet, actually, from a dive company in Fiji saying, oh, if you come out with us in the next couple of days, uh, we're going to be seeing corals spawning. And, and that sort of gave me a moment in time to go, hang on a minute, they know yeah. The sporting is going to happen in a couple of days' time. Um, and it gives you a location. So then I just started working backwards, really, to, to start trying to figure out what are the environmental conditions that that make this sort of amazing event that mm. happens, you know, for each species, just a few nights of the year. And how can we replicate that in, in aquariums? And, um, and yeah, I, I suppose the... The sort of idea was sort of born in the, uh, reading that tweet in in the November, I think, to 20, 2012. And I started, um, I've been doing quite a lot of coral disease work for, for about three or four years. And we just kind of repurposed the research systems that we were doing the, the coral disease work mm-hmm. um, and and modified them and made them suitable for coral sporting. So we um, worked with just a couple of individuals, so just two species of a cropper to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, and lo and behold, eight months later, they spawned. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty broadly. good success and for that amount of time. <laughs> yeah, we were starting with little frags, but yeah. um, I, ha- I had loads of little frags of the same genotypes. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the mentality was they had to hit a certain size to, yeah. to put their energy into gametogenesis and so i just went around the tanks and and collected all the frags of each of those genotypes and put them on a big rock uh so that they could fuse back together and i could build a big system a big uh, big coral mm-hmm. uh quickly rather than waiting for that frag to get yeah. to the right size yeah. and so yeah i built this sort of one was 50 centimeters across it was a cropper valida and then a, a cropper prostrata um, which is about 40 centimeters in diameter. Yeah, pretty uh, Just all from these these individual little pieces. Then very quickly they fuse together to form that color. Oh, okay, so you put all the frags um, together, and and because actually that was something yeah. I've wondered about is is you know coral colonies seem to have these kind of connections between uh, the skeleton, <clears throat> and like if you were to put a bunch of frags together, would they essentially kind of communicate with each other as as a colony this, again? This was the thinking. Mm-hmm. This this was the thinking in the early days that, that um, you know do, um, do is there a communication channel going from one side of the colony to another and is is there some underlying mechanism to say that I'm just too small mm-hmm. and I'm going to put my energy into growing to get myself big and you know at the time we were thinking is that important in terms of creating the zonation on a reef you know it's a battleground of every square inches a half for for place and so mm-hmm. if you're small do you do you want to establish your position on the reef and then once you've established then you go yeah. into reproduction yeah because you, I, you want I, to put your energy into the, growth for that first little while right exactly yeah i say this was the thinking at the time i don't think that's what happens at all by the way <laughs> <laughs> so so people that have frags we've now spawned stuff that that's pretty small um so I, I'm not entirely convinced that age is the defining factor. I think the age of the polyp is is the more important, uh, the more important factor. Okay. So yeah, you know, many, many, nearly every tank um, around the world will have a colony that it, that will be old enough to spawn. Mm-hmm. Um, with a cropper, I'm just talking about a cropper yeah. here. So um, you know, we we know that the three years old 
from settlement is when they hit sexual maturity. Okay. Um, so, you know, that gives you a moment in time. And like I say, we've, we've spawned pretty small pieces um, mm -hmm. and, and still had successful, you know, gamete development and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Well, something interesting I would um, add, add on that is the first spawn I witnessed in my system was a tortosa. Um, and I had mm -hmm. one really big colony that was probably 12, 14 inches, probably, you know, two or three year old colony. And I had frags in the frag system that was connected and another smaller colony that I would say was, you know, three or four inches. And the smaller colony spawned at the same time as the big colony. Um, what? And were they the same genotype? Yeah, yeah, they were the same. Like it was yeah, a it, frag from the same piece. So somehow yeah. the communication or the conditions, um, you know, triggered that spawn at the same time. Now, do they talk to each other or is it a coincidence that they just happen to, you know, develop those? No, no. I mean, f fundamentally, you're dealing with exactly the same genetic component. Yeah? yeah. It's just a smaller piece or a bigger piece. Yeah. So the environmental conditions of that system has meant that it's given them everything they need to start producing the gametogenic cycle. Mm -hmm. And they will spawn exactly the same time, like you say. Yeah. When you look at multiple mm -hmm. genotypes of a same species, there's subtle variation within a few minutes. You know, some will go uh, you know, pretty much the same time as the others. Some will be a little bit earlier, some will be a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But the, you know, the, the, the downside of that is when you have a single genotype, you, it's beautiful to watch, but there's nothing you can do with it. You can yeah. feed it to the fish. Yeah, really good fish food. Exactly. It's like the Rolls Royce of, uh, of fish food, but um, sadly, you can't do any fertilization work because they're, they're hermaphrodites. Uh, Acapora, mm -hmm. uh, they release an egg sperm package, Yeah. Um, but they cannot self-fertilize. There's, there's something called prezygotic barriers, which uh, inhibit... The, the the fertilization okay yeah because i was wondering about that and the the second spawn i had was like a massive spawn where i probably had I mean, it's hard to even tell how many pieces were spawning but there were a lot of different species uh probably at least 15 different pieces maybe six or seven different species that all did it at the same time yeah so oh that's cool so that would give me a little bit better chance if i mean we'll get into the details of how the gametes sail settle and whatnot but um yeah, yep. that, that got me wondering, like, if there's multiple corals spawning, you know, is there a chance of fertilization happening? So there's something called, um, we, we've worked with hybridization quite a lot over the over the last sort of 10, 11 years. And when you're in a situation where you've got, um, you know, just a single individual of a, that species spawning, you can either chuck it in the bin, or if you've got two individuals of, of, of two different species, you can try and do these hybridization crosses. Mm -hmm. And there's 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 techniques of doing it. Um, the, you know, one of the slides that I sent you, uh, there's, there's mm -hmm. kind yeah. of a, you, what you have to do is something called a self-fertilization blank. And so in that cir circumstance, you've got two individuals, two separate species. The, the best thing to do is to be able to remove those and put them in a bucket. So mm -hmm. What you know is whatever is spawning in there is just coming for that individual, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's no sperm in the water that can can basically muck up your results. Yeah. And what you'd end up doing is collecting all of those gametes off the the surface of the buckets. Um, a tiny portion of that, and you only need like I don't know fifty bundles, which will break apart and give you you know a couple of hundred eggs, a few hundred eggs. Mm -hmm. You would just leave that to for the bundles to break apart, the sperm and eggs from that individual. 
to be liberated and stay in its own test tube. Um, and you'd wait two hours later, at least two hours, because mm-hmm. the first cells divide after about two hours. Okay. And you would take a photograph of all the eggs that are in there. And then you'd simply count the number that are divided versus the ones that are stayed spherical. Mm-hmm. And that's how we that's how we calculate our fertilization percentage. Now, the fer- self-fertilization blank will always come back with pretty much zero. You may have 0.001% that is fertilized. So you may have one uh, you know, embryo that's fertilized. Mm-hmm. But if you do that with both individuals, you're basically proving that there is no self-fertilization. But then what you do with the rest of the gametes that you collect, you would, um, the eggs will float to the surface. So if we, if we, yeah. you know, we've got a, a cup full of the eggs, mm-hmm. all, all, all the, all the bundles that we filled up, the eggs float to the surface, the yeah. sperm fills the water. So we basically oh. siphon off the sperm yeah, and then wash, wash the eggs and you end up with two beakers. So you have a beaker of sperm, a beaker of eggs from that individual coral. Okay. And then, and then it's bucket chemistry. You then have, ultimately, if you've got two individuals of two separate species, you've got four cups. You just pour the eggs from one in the sperm of the other and vice versa. Yeah. And then you, again, you wait that two hours and then you look at the eggs dividing and then it will give you your percentage fertilization. Yeah. Wow. Now, the vast majority, I've, I've probably done nearly a hundred of these different crosses. So I've taken... Cool tenuous sperm to try and mix with mediapora eggs mm-hmm. or or you know a whole whole range of permutations what I, and i don't know why so there's something called prezygotic barriers these prezygotic barriers are methods that inhibit some of this fertilization this hybridization one of those prezygotic barriers is the number of nights after a full moon that a species spawns. So if we look at Australia, for instance, a crop tenuous normally starts sort of three nights after the full moon and is pretty much finished by about five to six nights after the full moon. Whereas something like a crop media poor, it doesn't start spawning until five nights after the full moon and will run through to seven or eight nights after the full moon. Now, a tenuous spawning on three nights, it's never going to f- cross-fertilize mm-hmm. with the media pora the spawns on the fifth night because the, the gametes are gone and they're washed away. It's 48 hours later. So that's one prezygotic that, barrier. That's interesting because I was going to ask um, why we don't see more hybrids in nature. And and I, I guess it's for that particular reason and that, that there's a bit of a, they kind of are out of sync with each other as far as their spawning, spawning times for the most yeah. part. So, so th- this is one of the barriers that inhibits. There is a lot of hybridization going on, mm-hmm. a huge amount. Yeah. Um, but there have to be species that are spawning in that same window of time. Yeah. And you think about the mass spawning on the Great Barrier Reef, it's a whole, you know, there's hundreds of species all yeah. mixing uh, their gametes together. And that's that's the factor that then drives uh, this hybridization. Um, then another of those barriers is not just the number of nights after full moon, but the number of minutes after the sunset. And so mm. fundamentally, the word, the, and this took a, you know, a couple of years to really figure this out is once you understand that a tenuous from Australia spawns three to five nights after the full moon in, in, uh, you know, November or December, and it changes year on year, depending on where the full moon sits in, in that month, it means that you can plan all of your research around it. So you, Mm -hmm. if you allow your system to replicate the natural conditions, um, you can, 
pretty much go, well, I'm going to have a look at the calendar. These these are the days that I'm going to be working with the spawning. Um, this is the, the number of minutes after my lights go down. And, you know, that's the window that we start planning all of our work around, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's really understanding what is driving that reproduction in the wild and then being able to replicate that in captivity and then being able to uh, leverage that to do whatever the research that you want to do, whatever the output from that spawning work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess like this would be something we would come to later, but the, obviously you're saying the moon cycle is is a huge part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And something I noticed actually, uh, because your main system that you grow some your in is at your home, right? Yeah. I, yeah, and I saw that you have this curtain around it. So I suppose that has something to do with keeping some of the ambient light of the room and being able to separate the system. Yeah. So this, this again, you know, so much of this has been hard learned over time. And when I first started doing the work ex situ, I was still using an in situ mentality and spawning of most species, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night, broadly speaking, Mm -hmm. when we think about a proper, not all, but it's a general rule of thumb. There's outliers both earlier, later. Um, the che- so the first two years of w- three years um, of working at the Holderman, we we were still using that mentality that oh we needed the systems to be so the sun would rise at whatever seven in the morning and it would be setting at half six at night and to capture the spawn we'd be working through to midnight yeah <laughs> um, and and then we have to run a public aquarium so you get back home you'd be in bed like one or two. We'd have to be back at work at eight in the morning <laughs> to open up the public aquarium. And it was just killing us. And one of the hardest lessons I ever learned from it, we had spent about t- t- 10 months um, getting government permits to collect corals in Singapore. So mm-hmm. we worked with uh, a, a big public aquarium in Singapore called Resorts World Sentosa. Uh, a good close friend of mine, uh, James Guest, who Dr. James Guest, I asked him to become one of my PhD supervisors because he's just an absolute legend in the coral restoration world. Mm-hmm. Cool. He was working at Singapore at the time. And we said, look, come on, let's let's bring corals in from Singapore. We needed to know the provenance of where the corals came from. We could collect. So we collected 14 genotypes of a cropper hyacinthus, um, and we got those from two reefs. We collected those <clears throat> at least 50 meters apart so that we mm-hmm. could rule out that they might be a fragment that's then glued onto the reef and you end up collecting, you know, multiples of the same genotype and then rule all the fertilization work. So mm-hmm. we put those kind of measures in place to make sure that we had the genetic diversity. And we shipped, we collected those in February, shipped them back to London. So they actually stayed in, in the ocean for about, a, we made a, 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 a nursery stayed in the nursery for about three weeks to settle after mm-hmm. we've broken pieces off. Um, and they were big pieces. You know, yeah. we, we we got government permits to bring up to 25 centimeter diameter pieces. Can I just um, ask for a second why Singapore? Because obviously we've got lots of Acropora and other corals that are easier to get from Indonesia and Australia, et cetera. So why Singapore? Um, we So we made the plan up while there was myself, a guy called Aaron Brett, who, who's in New York now. He was the curator at, um, at uh, Resorts Wells and Toast at the time. And then James, the three of us were on a, an in-situ uh, workshop in Guam 
in in July the year before, and because of the connection of James, knew all the government um, you know officials through his research. We had Aaron who had the facilities in the aquarium, and so the, it just worked right. Mm-hmm. You know, James knew so much about the spawning um, periods in Singapore. Yeah, and so it, it was just all those connections really yeah. that that made made the project make sense, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Okay, so, yeah, so we, you so you get those colonies, and then what's <laughs> uh, what's the next phase with those? And we 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 uh, we paid a lot of money in in shipping, so we, yeah. <laughs> we shipped them because they were so big. Yeah, we floated them on big polystyrene rafts upside down, and used um, you know um, elastic bands to suspend them. Yeah, um, they came in about fifteen liters of water. For each yeah. one, yeah, so really bloody heavy. So like a cooler, so a cooler each, per coral, one. probably. Yeah, that, yeah, basically, yeah, it was that. So we had fourteen boxes that we flew back over. They came into the Horniman. We had the system program to map um, Singapore's reefs, and we had a date in um, end of March, early April that we thought the spawning was going to happen. But we were using that in situ mentality. So the sunset was happening at like I think it was about seven o'clock at night. We were thinking the spawning should happen between nine and ten, and we would carry on monitoring up to about midnight. And we started on the full moon. Normally, the window of time for that that species is about five to seven nights. And mm-hmm. we'd be working from full moon, and we got up to seven nights, still nothing. Got to eight nights, still nothing. Nine nights, still nothing. Ten nights, still nothing. And uh, you know, I was, I was on the phone to James. He was in Singapore, and it's like James had been diving on the reef, and said, "Well, they've all spawned here on the reef, or or maybe it's just um, some. You can have something called a split spawning year, where mm-hmm. some will spawn in one month, and then some of the individuals will wait and go the following month. Mm-hmm. And it depends on how how developed the eggs are. And so he, we we were taking fragments, looking at the cross sections, looking at the color of the eggs, and he was like, "Well, you know, maybe they're just waiting to go the following month, because we'd missed already that time window past the full moon." Yeah. And so we'd taken that. I think we got up to about ten or eleven nights. It was something like that, and we were knackered. And you're just watching these. You're watching these every night, just being like, "Come on!" Every single night, (laughs) and then and then and then getting back home. Then having to be back at work at eight in the morning. Yeah, you're basically on call. You're on call for coral yeah. spawn. Yeah, totally. And so we eventually said, right, okay, we think it's going to go the following month, and we we packed it. We packed up that. What is my accurate at the time? He was then working on his own the following day, and to this day, I just don't know what he was thinking. But the whole system was milky. And yeah. he didn't tell anyone. Oh no! <laughs> so we 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 had a couple of days um, off just to kind of recuperate. Um, so it was milky the next yeah. day, and we we basically missed it. That's yeah, yeah. Um, but if he had said at that time, because we came in the next day, and actually it wasn't until uh, just before the the following full moon that we the penny dropped what had happened. Because generally, what you do to check your corals, and this is something I would literally advocate anyone that wants to work or witness a coral spawning mm. in their in their home system every time you take a frag to give to a friend or sell or whatever that is look at the cross section just look at the where the branch has broken mm-hmm. look at the at the branch but also look inside the colony because okay. that's where you're going to see the the eggs yeah um, so they're actually and, the eggs are actually stored 
down below the polyp. They're not in the polyp. Yep. They're actually down in the yep. skeleton. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have the the sort of polyp. If yeah. we, if, say this is a cross section. You've got mm. the tentacles coming up, and you have the channel mm -hmm. uh, where the gut filaments run all the way down this. Yeah. They're basically developing down um, down the you okay. know, in, inside the the by the gut. Yeah, and basically. I, I, I guess so an, the, another marker um, because I've noticed this recently i had some millipora that i could tell were ready to spawn about a day or two before they did and i could just see the polyp like just around the polyp it just looked a little extended like a little bit of a you know a little bit of a bump there and predictably yep. you know i think it was a night or two later i checked the tank you know after lights out with the flashlight and that coral was spawning so there are things you can look for you know but it's very fine you know fine details yeah and when, when um one of the things that we look for when mm. the coral is about to go is something called setting. And this is the egg sperm bundle coming up into the mouth of the coral. That's probably what will... I saw. Yeah. Yeah. So with things like Meliopora that are sort of browns or pinks or, or you know, it's, it's quite difficult to see mm -hmm. because the color of the gamete is very similar to the background color of the coral. In green corals, it's much, much easier because you get that beautiful contrast between the sort of red or orange of the gamete against mm -hmm. the, you know, the the branch color of, of green when you see setting on a colony um so there's there's pictures we generally we use redhead torches because if you use a white flashlight it can disrupt the spawning behavior okay but when you see setting that individual is going to spawn okay it's, yeah. it's not going to pull it back in no you just got to see it's it come that far wait. the baby's going to come out yeah <laughs> yeah and 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 it depends. Setting can last. So things like a cropper and microcladus, they can set for quite a while, like a good few hours before they release. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like a tenuous or a mediapora, you're generally looking at like half an hour before the spawn. Okay. So it gives you that early warning that it's definitely going to go. And again, if you want to collect those and start doing the fertilization, the thing to do is just turn the main drive pump off, isolate the system from the sump, turn off all your internal pumps and just leave the whole tank static. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then you just sit there and watch. And yeah. once they start releasing one, it will you know just be a couple of uh, bundles to begin with, and then it will really pick up mm -hmm. and then they'll be throwing thousands of them out. Yeah. Um, and then it's just a, a process of skimming them off the surface. Yeah. And, and I guess like you were saying to sort of not mess with the process, it's better to not turn your aquarium lights on if they're doing it but once they're started they're probably not going to stop right <laughs> yeah no no they they don't once they start spawning you can um, you can film you can light them up you can take pictures the downside to this is say you've got 10 individuals of a species and you want to do fertilization work and i've done this many times and just one because you often will get a staggered. It won't all just be on a single night you can often have a little trickle mm -hmm. so if it's a big colony uh, they can release a pre-spawn, just yeah. 10, 20, 50 bundles. And so that gives you that early warning signal that the, the following night is going to be the big, yeah. big night. Yeah. What you can also get, say within those 10 individuals, one of those will set and may spawn um, on that, that first night. And you can get carried away and you can film it. You can turn the lights on. You will throw all the other nine out and they won't be going you will you can break down how they spawn mm -hmm. the following night and you can end up really losing the opportunity to do your fertilization work so um 
you know, I've done this before and really witnessed that, the, the, the light pollution created by filming, one that gone early, has meant that the others have, have become a bit erratic. And it, yeah. they may not spawn for another couple of nights or something because yeah. they're like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. I don't know what's going you know, the moon's up. It shouldn't be up. Yeah, the moon's not right. <laughs> um, yeah. So so what, what we are pretty sure what's going on is inside the corals, they have something called cryptochromes, which are sensitive to light, uh, light and the absence of light. So each night you move past the full moon from when the sun sets to the period of the moon rising, the period of darkness extends. And if you go on to timeanddate.com, type in wherever you are in the world you can look at full moon you can see where the moonrise moonset is and you'll notice that it starts um, eating you get this extended period of darkness as the moon rises because it gets later and later each night mm -hmm. and we think that the corals are sensitive to this period of lack of light rather than the presence of light mm -hmm. and so if you start lighting in that dark period that's what can break down the synchronicity we I've got a PhD student that I'm supervising at the moment. He's done some brilliant work out in Palau. Um, his first paper will be out fairly soon. And we're just planning the next stage of uh, his experiment, which he'll be doing in March back in Palau. Um, and he's trying to understand uh, night uh, sky glow. So where we have a lot of coastal development and, and artificial lighting, mm, yeah. it really disrupts that period of darkness. Mm. And we see a, a very distinct... A different spawning response in areas that um, exposed to light pollution, light pollution compared pollution. to outer reefs. Huh. Yeah. Um, and so going back to that thing you were saying about, I put that blackout blind out in my kitchen. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of me going in this long convoluted uh, way of describing this, but th this I learned because of the Singapore coral. So mm -hmm. I was using my in-situ thinking to apply to ex-situ with the uh, thought that you know they have to spawn at night and i need to be having the light up in the in the day to do all the maintenance and because we missed it i was just like what the hell am i doing i'm putting all this effort into replicating the ocean mm -hmm. as best as i can from temperature change lunar cycles photo periods why am i not just taking complete control and moving yeah. the coral to spawn in my working day and this then led on to we needed to modify the system design so that I do a lot of photography and I, I have taken photographs from a young age. And so I used to do a lot of um, film processing myself and dark room type of thing. So really kind of use that that photography, dark, dark uh, room principle. Yeah. And put it into coral spawning. Yeah. <laughs> and so we now have a double door system on all of our spawning systems. So you can black out the, the main research system, but then you have this big blackout tent. So you can walk in and out of there without the external light uh, pollution affecting uh, the corals, basically. Mm. Okay. Um, and I've just made a, a cheaper version at home yeah. when we spawn at home. Yeah. But it, And understanding how the corals spawn in the wild means that you can get complete control. So again, going back to Acropora tenuous as, a, as an example, and there's so much information in the scientific literature about we're understanding more and more reproductive patterns from more locations in the world and, and more species. And that, that's the reference point that we can then apply to spawning in your home or, or spawning at re for research, whatever that, mm -hmm. that goal is. 
But then what we're now understanding is they're really plastic. We can move them all over the place. Um, mm. So to start with, and this is 100% one of the unique powers of ex-situ spawning over work in the field. So Australia, a cropper of tenures, we know that generally it'll spawn between sort of 45 minutes and, you know, an hour and a half after sunset, mm -hmm. three to five nights after full moon in November or December. And then again, there's outliers. Some and is that once a year? Food. Is it once a year? Depends on the colony. Mm -hmm. um, generally, generally it is. Um, if I come back to that in a bit, because yeah. we're learning a lot more about that as well. Um, but once you say, right, it spawns normally. Uh, so the time of year that it spawns, you normally get sunset happening about half past six at night. And they normally spawn at half past seven, around mm. half past seven. So what we've done at the Horniman is we just move our sunset that happens half past 10 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then it means they spawn for us at half past 11 in the morning. And so and because we're British, we like our tea breaks. <laughs> we, uh, we, we have a cropper of tenure spawning in the morning. We do the fertilization. We have our tea break. Yeah. And then after lunch, we grab some lunch and then we'll have media pour spawning at about, but it normally starts about one o'clock. Yeah. Uh, takes us through to about two. Um, Galaxia, we do a lot of work with Galaxia. That, that normally is actually sort of in the window of about midday. So uh, with sunset happening, it's about an hour and a half after sunset. Mm -hmm. So each each species has its own window. And so yeah. we started initially moving the time of sunset and making them spawning in our working day. And that meant we could manage a public aquarium and still do this research behind the scenes and still have a home life yeah. and not be completely killing ourselves. Yeah. Um, so by the time we've collected all the gametes and have done our fertilization, we're done by five o'clock. You know, we can set up all our cultures and then we can go home and, mm -hmm. and have a social life. And uh, and it's it's been completely game changing. It's completely changed the the thought process of how do you manage spawning, whether that, like I say, whether that is for research or restoration or whatever that is. And we then started taking that a, a stage further. For my PhD, I had to keep all of the systems in sync with the wild because I I had to kind of document exactly, um, you know, to to Australia Australia and Singapore Singapore were the two areas that I focused on, mm -hmm. um, and so that my systems had to replicate those conditions and I had to compare in situ observations to what was going on, um, you know, back in London. Um, but then after the PhD, we thought, oh, sorry, let's just start playing around. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you could look at your staff rotor. And generally, I, I um, have more staff on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I have the most staff on a Wednesday. And then we scale it down for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And we have got to the point where we go, well, looking at the staff rotor, we want to try and avoid weekends. So let's move where the full moon sets. <laughs> yeah. So we just we just fudge it. So it, say the full moon was on the 25th, which is this month. We go right. We that that means there'll be a spawning at the weekend. We don't want that. So let's yeah. move the full moon to happen on the 20th and and pull it forward by a few days. So it's we're learning. There's a huge amount of control you can have over that spawning behavior. Yeah. Basically, the the coral have almost become uh, part of your staff as well, <laughs> in a way. You're I'm, right. I'm amazed how specific you you're able to you know get these windows sorted out and you know um yeah it's... that's interesting about photo period um and I don't know if this is getting us a little off track but 
I've wondered before, is it possible to kind of artificially create two photo periods in one day, like in one 24 hour period? Like, could you do, could you do a six or seven hour photo period, then a six hour break, then another photo period, essentially? Would it be possible? Because there might be a certain amount of time that the corals need to expel the carbon dioxide they've taken in. There's there's that reset that you talked about with the dark light thing. I can't remember what the word was. Mm-hmm. Um, but could you essentially fake an extra day within a day? That is a bloody good question. And I've never <laughs> thought about it like that. I've never thought about it like that. We, we've definitely done where we have shrunk the whole year into six months mm-hmm. to try and make a six month cycle and that that comes back to what you were saying you know how many times does a coral spawn and we've done a quite a lot of work on that to see if we can force two spawns a year rather than the single single spawn mm-hmm. and the answer to that is certainly the first experiment we ran it doesn't work with certainly with a cropper immediate so we've done quite a lot of histology so whenever We'll always um, look at when the full moon is and break branches a few days before the full moon. And the idea behind that is you're getting the most up-to-date gamete development status Mm -hmm. or oocytes, the oocytes of the eggs. Mm -hmm. So this is really the thing that we're looking at is is, uh, the color of the oocyte. Um, And once that starts pigmenting, that individual is going to spawn after the next full moon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So before that, it will be it'll be white. And it's actually pretty difficult to see. You know, you, you really need a microscope and, yeah. and be checking it out under there. So we always check before the full moon. Now, there's one experiment that we ran over about three years was looking at how we could manipulate the time of year at which they spawn, the number of spawns we could get in a year. And the first phase of that took 18 months. Um, and we were trying to disentangle um the light dynamics, so things like uh, the photoperiod, but also the solar irradiation. So mm-hmm. how close the sun is to the Earth affects how much photons hit the Earth. And so photoperiod is, is, is obviously the length, but the solar irradiation is the power of the sun, which varies over the year. Yeah. And looking at the solar, um, so you, you basically have your, your vernal equinox in the spring, and then you have your autumnal equinox. When you, I don't know whether, um, we'll probably have to put some pictures up to try and yeah. describe this, but you, you basically have the, the Earth traveling around the sun in an elliptical movement. Um, it passes the sun at the closest point of the vernal equinox. So at the spring equinox is when the, the Earth is closest to the sun mm-hmm. and the most amount of photons are hitting the Earth. Yeah, And so always the question has been, and this is, you know, People try to answer this in the field. What are the driving factors to trigger coral spawning? So there's been some papers that have said, well, it's actually photoperiod and solar radiation. Other other, uh, uh, papers have disagreed and said it's the rapid temperature rise that sinks the right month. Hmm. Um, But the thought is, is that these factors work at a progressively finer scale. So we go from winter they're starting to store energy, started producing the, the gametes, the rapid temperature rise um, is increasing that development. And then they're looking at the interplay then between the photo period and the lunar cycle. And the, those, the, all of these factors are stacking up 
to trigger the corals to reproduce in in this this window which is is specific to each of those species mm. the problem is when you look at photoperiod or solar radiation what happens to a coral that sits bang on the equator yeah that's, that was my question in my head i had queued up here <laughs> yeah the the photoperiod doesn't change it's mm -hmm. 12 12 year round yeah? yeah there's no change in that photoperiod but there is a huge change in the solar radiation mm. because of this elliptical movement. And if you imagine we've got the earth here, the sun at the, um, at the moment, we're in, you know, we're in the Northern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, we've got the summer down in Australia. And so the sun is predominantly like this. It then is gonna move up to our summer and then it moves back down again. And what it's doing is it's passing the equator twice. Um, and the, it's at the spring equinox when it's closest, but then it passes again in the, uh, the the autumn equinox. Mm -hmm. And when you plot out uh, the solar radiation curves directly on the equator, you see a double peak of irradiation. And it's to do with how close that the Earth is to the sun and passing at the spring equinox and the autumn equinox. When you look at our, for Canada or, or the UK, our irradiation curve just looks like a bell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In Australia, it's inverted. It, mm -hmm. The bell curve looks like that because yeah. theirs is peaked around December, right? Yeah. And a lot of work was then done looking at rubber plant, plant plantations. So mm. what is the thing that's triggering the flowering in rubber plant, um, rubber palm uh, plantations? Yeah. When you move north or south of the equator, the photoperiod is the thing that drives the flowering. When you're bang on the equator, the solar radiation curve is the thing that triggers the flowering. Oh, okay. And so... The argument was, is, are these light dynamics playing a role in triggering these spawning events? And so when you look at Singapore, which is pretty close to the equator, the main spawning event hits the spring equinox, but you have a secondary smaller spawn, which hits the autumn, uh, the autumn equinox. Mm -hmm. But then it also overlays with the temperature. And the problem is, is the temperature is directly linked to the solar radiation because the amount of photons hitting the water warms the water up yeah so if you pl if you plot out the solar radiation curve and then plot out the temperature curve mm -hmm. they look exactly the same it's just the temperature is delayed because there's a latent effect of warming the water up mm -hmm. so that i'm going into a bit of a word a rabbit no, that's hole okay here, but the but the 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 challenge is if you're trying to study this in the ocean you obviously can't disentangle those two um, parameters of, of light and temperature. They're in something called collinearity. Mm -hmm. And so the experiment that we ran over three years was really trying to boil and dig deeper into what are the driving factors that are causing spawning. So what we did is we separated out the light from the temperature. So we kept, actually, we have four systems we kept the light dynamics the same in all four systems and mm -hmm. we kept them in sync with the wild. Yeah. But then we manipulated the temperature profile. So all four systems had different temperature profiles. Mm -hmm. One of them, we tried to create a double temperature profile. One we kept in with the sync with the wild. So you're saying like a double, One, double peak, single peak, and then, yeah. And then another system we treated like a hobby system. Yeah. So we flatlined the temperature. We kept it 26 mm -hmm. degrees year round. So there was no seasonality in temperature. Mm -hmm. And then the, the fourth system, we basically got them into winter and then we held the corals in winter temperature 
for three months. And the theory behind all of this was the flatline temperature, they wouldn't have the right temperature cue to trigger their, their spawning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they would either not spawn, or if they did spawn, it would break down the synchronicity. And so different individuals might spawn at, at sporadic times of the year. We thought then with the flatline temperature in, or, or the, the prolonged winter temperature, could we delay the spawning? So by holding them in winter, can we just hold them for three months and it would push the spawning by three months down the line? Mm-hmm. Then with the double peak, could we create a double spawn? Because what we did is we conserved mm-hmm. the rapid temperature rise, that which had been um, sort of hypothesized as the, the thing that triggers the spawning. And then the one that was in sync with the wild just matched the wild. Yeah. And basically what happened is, and we did this with Acropora mediapora and Acropora, um, uh, Galaxia fasciculares. So we had uh, uh, 11 colonies of each species um, in the four systems. So we have 44 colonies. Um, and then every month we fragmented a branch from every colony and we took a polyp from each of the galaxia. We did cross-section images and then we did uh, histology on it so we could see the very early stages of, of gametogenesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a long-winded way of, of coming back to the question of can they spawn multiple times? Basically, what we found with the Meliopora is they have a really, really long gametogenic cycle. We could see the early stages of oocyte development within about two months after spawning. Mm-hmm. So they're they're developing these eggs for ten months inside wow. the coral. Yeah. So it's taking a huge amount of time. Galaxia is much shorter. About, about four, four to five months. Yeah. So in theory, something like a galaxy, you could spawn uh, more frequently. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like Mediapora, how far can we we uh, force the gametogenic cycle to, to speed up? Mm-hmm. These are questions we don't have answers to yet. It's yeah. We've got tantalizing glimpses of, of what we might do. But the way that those systems behaved is the one that had the double temperature spike just behaved like a normal system, just behave they spawned at the same time as the system that was in sync with the wild can i can i just ask for a second so this temperature spike or you know these variations are they within the photo period of the day or is this like a ramp up over the course of a month or a long period yeah over the year yeah okay so we so we we initially started using GHL right at the very beginning, uh, using GHL uh, Proflix controller, mm-hmm. and then we moved over to the the Apex uh, um, system. So we use Apex on all of them. A lot easier. The challenge is that it's a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, at the time, right at the beginning, um, I had a volunteer who was amazing at computer skills. Yeah, and he actually ha- hacked into the GHL. And then wrote software on the back of it oh, nice. yeah. that, that that allowed it to work. I had no idea how he did it, what he does, um, but that's really what allowed it to work. Mm-hmm. Going over to the Apex, it's super easy. The interface is easy, but there are also limitations to it as well. So, yeah. I, and I, if if anyone can answer this question, I would love to know. I've never figured out how we can make a, a diurnal cycle of temperature so we we can mm. make it cooler. At, um, at night and then make it warmer in the day but still make it follow the seasonal programming mm-hmm. so you, so re- refer to the seasonal table 
but put another line in code to create diurnal fluctuation. Yeah, I'm sure some, somebody might respond in the chat if they know, because some people nerd uh, out hard on the coding, coding I would, the I would, Apex. I would, <laughs> I would love to know that. Yeah. Absolutely love to know. So basically what, what we, and this was right at the very beginning, we, we chose, there is obviously a huge amount of noise from a day to day. And there's a huge amount of noise in, you know, the amount of light that hits a coral. You know, a boat goes past, kicks up sediment, blocks the light out for a couple of hours. And so all of these variations that are happening in the wild, from the research perspective, we were thinking, well, we don't want noise in, in the system because we're thinking about how the coral is responding to the long-term average. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a bit like, um, ultimately, the way we sleep, right? We get jet lag because every single day our body is being reinforced with the pattern of yeah. winter sleep. And then you jump rhythms. on a plane. Yeah. Exactly that. And so ultimately thinking around the biological processes, they're being reinforced every day. So mm. there may be days where there's cloud cover, there may be days, but they're look looking in inverted commas, they're responding to the general trend. And so with the temperature profiling, we have just put in a very smooth gen, um, uh, trend just using the apex, allowing the apex to, to follow that trend as, as closely yeah. as possible. Um, the only noise that we put in, and we've done this to try and save a little bit of money on electricity, is the way that we code uh, the heaters and, and uh, chillers is we don't necessarily want the heater taking up set point, then the chiller kicking in, then yeah, the crossover, in. yeah. So exactly, uh, that's how we did have it at the beginning. And my God, it was burning through electricity. Yeah. So we put an offset in to allow the temperature to drop below set point before it climbs back up. Um, so there is a slight variation around that. Yeah. I've uh, where are we? Oh yeah, we're going back. To, <laughs> I got lost there. Um, yeah, we're well. We. We should actually get into the phases here because we're like quite a ways in and we're uh, we haven't even gone through the phases. So let's go to your slides. No problem. So what we know is that I'm sure most people have had uh, Pacillopora uh, settle and, you know, bloody yeah. Pacillopora growing yeah, everywhere, everywhere. Pumps yeah. and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely everywhere. Often in the early days, people uh, called that polyp bailout. And yeah. what we actually now know, the most likely thing is, is just planulation. And so uh, Pacillopora is, Demicornis is a brooder. Uh, so about a quarter of corals, I'm oh, sorry, about 15% of corals are brooders. And mm -hmm. they are classified by having internal fertilization. Mm -hmm. You can have separate sexes. So the, the males will release sperm, females will be collecting those. Fertilization is happening inside the, the body of the, of the coral. And embryogenesis, uh, so the development of the embryos, happens internally. Mm -hmm. And then they throw out these fully formed larvae, which then settle and form the primary polyp. And so in the very early days, and I still do work with brooders, they're, they're a brilliant way of getting your teeth cut into working with spawning yeah. at home. I would totally advocate anyone, if they're interested in doing spawning work, grab themselves some Pacillopora and just start getting a feel for producing larvae. Yeah. And the the thing with them is they will, if you put a lunar cycle, you'll get a really nice uh, pattern. Uh, they'll they'll ramp up their planulation as you hit full moon, and then they'll drop back down and, and produce barely anything at new moon. So they show this really nice lunar pattern of, of chucking these larvae out. Mm -hmm. 
Bacillopora can self-fertilize as well. So a lot of the planulation that happens is asexual. So they're genetic clones. Um, so you don't even need to buy multiple colonies. You can buy yeah. one colony and still be working with spawning, right? Um, and because they're planulating throughout the year, it means that you can play around and set up experiments and, and do settlement studies and things like that throughout the whole year. Then the, the rest of the group, 85% of the corals are the broadcast spawners. And those are the ones that are releasing those eggs and sperm into the water. And of those, they can either be gonagoristics, the same as humans, having a male and a female, mm -hmm. or more commonly, hermaphrodites. So all acropora are hermaphrodites. They yeah. all release egg sperm packages. And they have external fertilization. So they pump all these gametes out of the water. The fertilization happens externally. Um, Embryos uh, generally will develop at the surface, form the larvae that drops down into the water and and, and settles into the primary polyp. Yeah, and you said in the case the of these Acropora um, that are hermaphrodites, they can't fertilize themselves. They they can't like fertilize themselves. So yeah. you 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 anyone that wants to start working around, uh, you're playing around with their their Acropora or Montipora or whatever that is, you just need to try and get multiple colonies. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there's a lot of frags that are sold in the industry and they have names. They've all got the same genotypes. You can't yeah. just go and buy the same, you know, paletta pink tip and you've already got a paletta pink tip. You're, you're working with genetically yeah. the same yeah, material. Exactly. So you have to go out and source a different individual of the same species. Yeah. I, I all, always recommend people that are trying to work with this, start with a cropper ameliopora. It is the best species to start with because it 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 becomes very fecund it produces a lot of eggs um if you we generally will work close to 100 percent becoming gravid one year to the next yeah so it's just a really reliable species yeah to, i would to say millipora my observation of that would be that it sits it's such a fuzzy big polyped coral it's extremely efficient at catching food and you know bringing in nutrients so therefore you know it has that ability to have that extra energy to to spawn essentially absolutely mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think that is something that we will pick up on feeding I'm yeah, yeah i've got a bunch of notes on that, on that. And i would say hyacinthus yeah. is a fairly similar species to millipora as well so maybe that would be a second hyacinthus is a pain though it, yeah. i've worked with it a lot over the years and when it comes to spawning it's a real fickle beast mm. um it just they just so many times refuse to sync up and they will spawn <laughs> at different times oh yeah and then you lose the opportunity another species that is really difficult to see the eggs in is a liriopes it's brilliant hmm. for spawning another one that will um, become gravid one year to the next the downside is is when you're fragmenting it it is really hard to see the eggs inside mm -hmm. and so you will fragment it and go oh that one hasn't got eggs but it has hmm. so most of the time you'll you'll miss that early warning signal. So yeah. it's a good species from being fecund, but it's not a great species for, for observation terms. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, keep going here. So broad, you were yeah, talking about the broadcasting we, of. Yeah, and, and generally the spawning events are really small windows of time. So we, we have a few days a year where each species has its window and they're releasing the gametes and then it's it's done. Mm -hmm. um, the next slide, just you know, the broadcast, the life cycle. So they're releasing these egg sperm packages. Fertilization is happening externally. 
the larvae is formed at the, you know, um, it then drops out of the water column, forms that primary polyp, and then grows on to become the coral that we know. Okay, can we get into details of that a little bit? Because my big question was how and when they settle. Like, what are the conditions in which they feel comfortable to attach to a surface? Um, because yeah, yeah, that's I've, been, be I've a got a few slides later. Okay, so we'll get to that yeah. in a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 definitely. And each okay. species has its own little, uh, you know, secret to unlock. Yeah. So right at the beginning, um, when I started thinking about this, I was trying to look at all the research uh, that got into looking at the triggers of coral spawning. And there was everything from, uh, it, at the time, we thought there might be species-specific drivers. So one of those being a species has to hit a certain size before it produces eggs. This is the early thinking, Okay. Then we know that they're voracious predators and, and heterotrophic feeding has got to play a role in uh, you know, acquiring the nutrients required to, to produce these gametes. These gametes are filled with lipids. They're very energy rich and mm. they, 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 they take a lot of energy to produce. Yeah. And so once you've got a, a colony that's either the right age or right size, it's feeding well, then the thought is the temperature profile is that first thing that triggers the, the reproduction. Some of the scientific literature has talked about regional wind fields. So during calm periods, there's been some literature talking about spawning during the dry season, because if you imagine all those gametes up at the surface, you don't want a tropical rainstorm, you know, basically yeah. uh, creating osmotic shock and killing yeah. all of those. Yeah. And then as you move around in the clockwise diameter around this sort of, um, you know, this, this picture, the idea is, like I say, they're working at a progressively finer scale. When I started looking at this, so this was this is what our amazing research systems behind the scenes of the Hornman looked like. Um, so this big blackout tent. Yeah, I see that. It was all done on a on a super shoestring budget. We had no mm. money. Uh, we had an idea, but but um, so we got this GHL controller. Like I say, uh, the, the volunteer hacked into it and, and coded the temperature nice. profiling and things like that. Um, and we built out as just cheap building materials so that we control the whole light dark environment. And you can see this is basically the behind the scenes space of the Horniman. It is tiny. Yeah, we have yeah. to try and squeeze. It's a, like cool. A lot it's a in. wall of garbage bags. <laughs> Exactly. And all down the left hand side is where we do. It looks pretty different these days. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll send over some pictures that you can drop in as well. Yeah. We do all our jellyfish culturing down the left hand side. We've now got a whole bank of coral sporting systems up, up the right hand side. Um, and then the construction of that colony. I mentioned that we went around. Uh, I picked up all of these pieces of the same genotype. Yeah, that looks like Valida. Valida in that photo. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And because they're the same genotype, they fuse back together with something called isogeneic fusion. And again, the idea was, do they end up creating this communication channel from one side of the colony to the other yeah. to go, right, I'm the right size, I can spawn now. Like I say, I don't think that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, it, we've, we've sort of moved on from that thinking. Okay, yeah. And then eight months after building that, that, uh, that colony, lo and behold, it spawned. Um, it was just a single individual, but it basically, we uh, the prostrata went a month later. Mm -hmm. At that point, I knew that I cracked it. I knew that the the first predictable spawning, you know, the camera was set up. Mm -hmm. I knew when it was going to go, and it was just like right now. Now we've done it with with. I had no idea where these colonies had come from. I'd had them fifteen years before then as yeah. fragments and stuff, so I had no provenance. 
So yeah. that's when the, the discussion about you know focusing on Singapore to do this properly, we need multiple genotypes of the same species, know the provenance of where they've come from. Yeah. And then you can really start fine tuning on, on what you're doing. That makes me think about something is is like, you know, once we've had something in our aquariums, you know, that's something that's been in the hobby a long time, that whatever those markers or time frames that existed on its normal spawning sort of regimen, that's kind of all goes out the window. Right. So by collecting these Singapore pieces, you knew that they were within that cycle period. Exactly. And we specifically collected those in February because we knew the spawning was happening in March, April. So nature had already um, primed them up. Mm -hmm. They were already yeah. carrying it. And, but then so you we, missed we the spawn. <laughs> like you were but saying. then we missed the spawn. But the, and the reason behind that is we not missing the spawn. The reason behind that was, you know, whatever but uh, having a life but reason, i don't know <laughs> yeah well, yeah exactly exactly but the the reason of shipping them in then and this again was thinking about the size and and being the right age yeah by shipping colonies that already grab it you know they've hit sexual maturity you can then spawn them and then anything that you do for the following year to get them to spawn again you know you're replicating the conditions that are needed to get them to produce again. Yeah. And that was really important to scientifically validate the process was working, basically. Yeah. Um, so, and it, it took a few years. We kind of mucked around with the systems a bit, and then uh, we published this paper. This was the first paper out of my PhD, and, and Professor Mike Sweet is a you know, close friend. He's, a, he's now one of the co-founders as well of the Coral Spawning Lab. Mm -hmm. He... He basically, I've been helping him during his PhD with his uh, coral disease work. And he was like, look, you're doing all this work when he write it up as a PhD. And so he was my supervisor for my PhD. This was the first uh, paper we published. And we specifically wanted to make sure that it was open access. So we paid about $3,000 uh, to make sure that it wasn't sat behind a paywall. So yeah. anyone can go pick this paper up, read it. And it will tell you what you need to know. Basically. Okay, so this slide right um, now is kind of like the main sort of layout of what's in the paper. Yeah, so yeah. there is the sort of system design. It talks about the, the temperature profiling, the solar yeah. radiation curves. So there's the double peak I was talking about with the, yeah. with, uh, this is Singapore showing. So there's the spring equinox and then the autumn equinox. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have to say, I don't think you need to do solar radiation anymore, but this yeah. was what what we were doing at the time. To the point that the lunar cycle, I started getting really obsessed with this. And mm -hmm. the Neptune um, Luna, the LSM module, comes with blue LEDs. And I was like, man, the, the, the sun is blue. shouldn't be blue, yeah. right? It, it's a reflection of the sun. It's the same. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's reflected light. So it's full spectrum light. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, it sits at about, I don't know, 4,100, 4, 4,200 Kelvin. Yeah. Um, at full moon, it's about 0.1 lux. And so what I end up doing is I, I cut all of the blue LEDs off and soldered in warm white Whoa. LEDs. <laughs> yeah. And then then I got a lux meter. My lux meter is Milwaukee lux meter, went down to one lux. That was the most sensitive I could do. Mm -hmm. So at full moon, I stayed late one night and I just got the lunar, uh, the lux meter and I made a, I got a ping pong ball and I cut them in half. I stuck them over the LEDs to act as diffusers. Yeah. And then I, 
I needed three bits of white sticky tape. <laughs> and that that pulled down the full moon intensity to one lux at the water surface. And that's basically as close as I could get to replicating true lunar patterns. Yeah, that's basically. getting really specific. I just That brings up a question for me is um, like the Ecotech radions and some lights have a lunar cycle built in that you can activate. Yeah. Um, how, yep. What would you be your opinion of that? I mean, I would say it's better than nothing if you're thinking of have, trying to get sure. close to spawn, right? So, you know, I have to say right at the beginning when we were doing this, um, Jake Adams came over and visited me and I... I have to say I was stuck in quite an old school way of thinking. I hadn't engaged with the hobby for for probably a decade or something. Mm. And he he came along and um, just was going, it's brilliant what you're doing, but where you're running your systems just sucks, man. <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, and he was absolutely He's right. like, you're old school, like, dude. <laughs> he was just like, man, what are you doing? Yeah. And he was like, right, you need to come over to America. And he, he uh, got me out to Magna cool. and, you know, God bless his soul. He, he stuck his arm around me on the last day of Magna and just marched me around to all the vendors and cool. basically went up to Ecotech to, to Justin and said, Justin, this is Jamie. Jamie's doing cool stuff with Coral Spawning. You need to sort them out. Justin was like, cool, send me a list of what you need. And so Ecotech awesome. have been amazing. They, Great. They've sponsored the work at the Hallman all along. And so we we have co-developed that lunar, lunar uh, light um in there so it's oh, based on this paper awesome. uh, where it gone uh, i have to say we i've not been using that in the systems we're still on gen fours at, yeah. at the uh, at, at the um at the museum at the moment so we don't have access to to that lunar module in there yeah um but yeah i mean that paper pretty much sort of spelt spelt the whole whole system out um so, and it creates the platform. Once you know when the spawning happens, the sort of next slide is, is trying to describe the process of then just validating what you're seeing inside the coral, okay? So mm -hmm. the, the, we always look at when the full moon's gonna happen. And you can either do that by looking at what your apex is doing or going on timeanddate.com and, and see what date that is. And then you work a couple of days before the full moon. So you fragment your corals. And so, this uh, picture at the, the top is is actually that Acropora prostrata uh, back in 2013. Mm -hmm. And then we preserve that, and that's what the histology looks like. So basically histology is you, you've got a preserved branch that we, mm -hmm. we normally preserve in formalin, and then you put it in an acid, and it melts all the, all the skeleton. So you end up with just the soft tissue, mm -hmm. and then the soft tissue gets embedded in a wax block and then you shave microfine um, slices off the end of that fragment. Great. And then you put that on a microscope slide and then you add different stains. And so what you're seeing on those pictures is the pink, the, the brightest pink blobs mm -hmm. are the eggs. So they're the oocytes. Okay. And in between, you can see little areas of purple. So that purple is the sperm okay. developing and stuff. Okay, so... Um, We've got from August the 13th right the way through to the 6th of October. And, and so this this individual actually uh, for the 6th of October was when it spawned. And I fragmented. That's the setting I was telling you about earlier. So it's a little bit difficult to see on a brown coral like this prostrata. But the the pink that you're the or the sort of orange that you're seeing in the center of the polyp, they're the bundles coming up into the mouth. Yeah. And if you look look at the histology underneath, 
in the sort of top about 10 o'clock, 10, 11 o'clock, mm -hmm. you can see uh, the, the, the two blobs of pink. That's the expert package right up in the mouth of the pollen because mm. I preserved it at the processor setting. Yeah. Um, and so you're looking through a cross section basically of, mm. of a of a setting coral. Cool. And then once you've once you've got that, it's about counting the number of nights after full moon, the number of minutes after sunset, and it's those things that all go into play to then to then uh, be able to collect the collect the gametes. Yeah. So yeah, I, I see how you're able to really get down to knowing those precise timings now. I mean, it makes sense based exactly. on the the things you're able to observe from from these uh, these slides. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Okay. What and then next? Uh, next one, gamete check. So this is just sort of showing the process. I mean, everyone knows how to frag the coral, but the mm -hmm. the, the principles are um, the peripheral edge is infertile. So you can't just break a, a tip off a branch on the outside of the colony because that's the newest material that's being yeah. laid down by the coral. Yeah. And so that isn't that isn't fertile. It's not sexually mature yet. So generally, if you've got a colony like this, you want to take a branch from the center. Yeah. Because you're taking the old tissue, and the the growth tip is also infertile. Yeah. So you have to take a branch of a decent length. It depends on the So you would probably person. if you had you would stay away from growing sort of axial correlites and maybe focus more on like a dormant correlite that doesn't seem to be actively growing. Would that be kind of Well, well you you take the whole branch. So you're yeah. obviously not just taking the whole uh, an individual polyp, but yeah, the axial um polyp will have no effects yeah. in. Yeah, cuz its energy is all I going into growth. I put it on this slide. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you, we, uh, this is a, you know, a, an F2, um, mediapora, um, and we've broken a whole branch off. So what is that? Like an inch long or something. Yeah. And you're looking at the base of the branch. Um, that's where the, the gametes are going to be basically. Mm -hmm. And so the next slide, this is a, a nice paper that Carly Randall, a colleague out in Australia published a couple of years ago, really illustrating that beautifully. So mm -hmm. the infertile growth tip. Um, is longer depending on the species. So a, a staghorn type of species, like a, a you know a cropper pulchra or a, a grandis or a, a miracata, mm -hmm. because they're laying down tissue so quickly, they're growing so quickly. That infertile growth tip is also longer. Mm -hmm. And so on this picture here, I don't know what that is. Whether that's a grand, uh, maybe that's yeah, a miracata, like Formo the, formosa or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Foremost uh, Miracata, they're sort of interchangeable Similar. now, yeah. I think, aren't they? Yeah. Um, but you can see that the, it's it's got a good inch where there's no gametes. Yeah, I see that. And at the base of that branch, that's the setting. So these are the expert bundles. This is a, the telltale sign that that individual is going to spawn. Yeah. Um, so these pictures just kind of illustrate that infertile uh, growth growth edge. And understand that's really important to where you sample. Yeah. Um, then there's sort of an example of, of um, Mediapora. This was in the kitchen a few years ago, showing showing my boys what to look for. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got it under white light and under red light. As, so you can see under red light, it can be a little bit difficult to get your eye into. Yeah. Um, but it, it just, the more you look at it, the, the more you kind of um, 
you know when it's yeah you can see and that's the same thing i saw in a millipora that i could tell was ready and and to to think back actually it probably spawned later that night i just didn't i didn't check again because it's happened so many times now i'm like whatever just let it do its thing but yeah it looked just like exactly yeah you see you see the egg set it's set and ready to be released basically and and the weird thing is we very rarely look at our corals at night um yeah so you you sometimes just think, oh, my God, is it setting? But it's just what a polyp looks like at mm. night, right? They, they're out and the mouth is sort of extended. But it's, it's when they're setting, it's really noticeable. You will just, you'll just go, ah, oh, that's it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So anyone, anyone checking out can, can use these as a reference. Um, so then the next slide is, is um, this was from a paper I published on, on co-culturing. So I... Um, once I created the platform of spawning, it was then what do you do with that? And um, the we'll get into that a bit later, actually. But um, so this just sort of details the embryological development stage. This is, again, a cropper ameliopora. So we have the, the newly released bundle, which is quite tight. Yeah. And this is basically the coral's evolutionary adaptation to ensure cross-fertilization. That's what, what spawning is all about. They're just like trees. They can't walk to each other to procreate. Yeah. So they have to release their packages at the same time mm-hmm. so that an individual that's 100 meters away on the reef, if they all release at the same time, the eggs are filled with lipids. So they're buoyant. They're little flat, fat globules that, that allow them to rise up to the surface, whereas the sperm needs to get up to the surface, but they don't want to suffer from sperm dilution. So what happens is you have sperm in the middle with mm-hmm. eggs wrapped around the outside. And so the lipid-filled eggs take the package up to the surface by synchronizing your release of these packages. You then have ocean currents mixing it all together. Mm-hmm. And then enzyme activity breaks the packages apart. And that's what B is showing you on, on this picture yep. here. I see that. But this is the sperm then liberating out. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a time delay of how long that disassociation is called disassociation. Um, so, it, and we, we think the time delay is relating to the zonation of where the coral comes from on the reef. So if it's in a high wave energy zone, we notice that the buoyancy of the egg goes much quicker. So they've mm. got higher fats so they pop up like a core. Mm. And we think that's to try and get away from the wave action that will be pummeling them back on the reef mm-hmm. and damaging the gametes. But then the disassociation time is really protracted. And this would make sense from sperm dilution. You wouldn't want to break apart in a high wave energy because your sperm gets washed away Mm, and then you don't fertilize. And so each species probably has its its windows at which these packages break apart, whatever. They then fertilize. And then um, after two hours, you start seeing the the first... um, uh, cell division. division. So yep. these, the fertilized oocyte is then termed a zygote. And um, with that picture on D, mm-hmm. this is what we would ultimately do to look at our fertilization success. They look like little, um, bum, little bums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Bums or boobs. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it would be, um, yeah, like, um, that that one that white one in the middle that hasn't fertilized okay so this is how okay. you end up um yeah. capturing your uh you know the the, the fertilization percentage yeah. and then ultimately goes from two cells four cells uh you know yeah. eight cells 16 so on and so forth so with a cropper 
you then run all the way through to zero or O at the end where you form the larvae. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of looking at that from F through to J, this will happen in about the first 12 to 18 hours. Okay. And so at, at I and J, you're at something called the prawn chip stage. This is a really delicate stage. Mm -hmm. um, and you generally need to be very careful with the culture at this point. Um, from prawn chip, it starts rounding. Uh, and this is when the mouth is formed. This is uh, the gut is going to form at this point as well. And then eventually you go to N is the teardrop stage and then you elongate into the larvae. So a cropper, this takes four days for okay. that whole process to, to take place. And that's all happening right up at the ocean and surface. I'm, I'm curious, in um, your in your lab, are they sitting, do they have some flow in the system or are they just sitting in essentially like dormant water? We, we do have um, like design, we've designed out different embryo rearing uh, vessels. Yeah. But you ultimately, you know, I've done this in the tropics. You could do it in an ice cream tub. Yeah. Um, just as long as the temperature's right and and uh, you know your water changing to maintain that water chemistry. Okay. Um, this is this is stuff that we have done with zero filtration in in yeah. ice cream tubs or Tupperware or whatever. Um, but generally, you know, we, we've developed these embryo rearing uh, devices. That we we've sort of taken that a step further with the the coral spawning lab. Um, and yeah, they will have a very gentle flow. Yeah. Keep the oxygen level a bit higher and that, that type of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the next slide is kind of, um, you know, what it looks like on a scanning electron microscopy. So, mm -hmm. you know, this, these are all preserved and then, um, you know, showing the moment of fertilization. That's actually a video on the right hand side, but it's, uh, I can, I can send that over to you. Yeah. It, it looks great. pretty cool. There was a, a time-lapse video of uh, 12 hours showing the cells dividing. Cool. Um, so then you get to settlements, you get the larvae and then you've got to find the trigger to get them to, um, to, to settle out. And what we know is that crustose coralline algae or, or CCA, mm -hmm. um, is the settlement cue. And there, there's been a lot of work done on this, looking at different species of CCA and also looking at the microbiome of the CCA. Um, so the thought is different species have different bacteria associated with them and the corals are picking up the chemical cues from the bacteria associated with the, the coralline algae okay. basically. Um, just um, a question before that I think I was thinking before this stage even is if these fertilized eggs are still floating at the surface and you know they basically have been designed to go to the surface when do they come back down is there something in that larval stage that triggers them to drop? Yep um there's actually some cool work been going on. One, looking at uh, barometric pressures. So we'd be doing some work with um, with colleagues at Exeter University. They have a, a pressure chamber, and we think that actually pressure is playing a role, and that's potentially some of the driving factors of why you see zonation in different parts of the reef. Mm -hmm. um, there's been some work that we've done with an, uh, another colleague at uh, Bristol University with with Professor Dave Sim uh, uh, Professor Steve Simpson looking at soundscapes. And so a healthy reef mm -hmm. has a totally different sound to a degraded reef. And some of the early work we've been doing uh, with one of his master's students the last couple of years, we've been using choice chambers. And so we put larvae at one end, it can swim and then make a choice. It can go one way or yeah. go the other. Okay. And using underwater hydrophones, we're showing that they will always swim 
to the healthy reef sound. And so it's a complicated process, but we we're slowly understanding some of these mechanisms. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of environmental parameters going on that that are triggering these these larvae. And I have I have heard that sound and I guess reverberation or whatever that is, it does play a role in in their comfortability to to settle like sounds like the 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 crack of the pistol shrimp like just those little exactly. things associated with you know i i don't know how the these little larvae have an awareness of it but there's something programmed we we published a paper about um i don't know about six months ago looking at the cilia mm -hmm. uh of the of the larvae and the cilia are sensitive to all of these vibrations basically mm -hmm. so that that's probably the mechanism of what's going on, basically. That's cool. Um, Steve Steve visited me last week. They've just got a grant, and they're looking at the vibration of the reefscape as well. So the reef not only has a soundscape, but it has a vibrating soundscape, mm. which we think the the larvae are able to detect and see the reef not as a physical structure, but as a sound structure as mm. well, which is absolutely cool. Wow. They've got this sound soundproof room. And the way that we did some pilots on this about 10 years ago, there's it, anyone's bored at night, just type in sonic levitation into YouTube. It's just the most voodoo crazy okay. thing. <laughs> and it's been used in, in, in insect work for years. Basically, if you get a, uh, a speaker, and you put the right hertz through, you create a sound pocket. If you put a an insect on the speaker, turn the, the right up to the right hertz, it will levitate the insect and hold it in really? a sound pocket. <laughs> Wild. And it, it can't it cannot move out of that sound pocket. It's mm -hmm. trapped. And so we try doing this with larvae in water. Mm -hmm. So we created a sound pocket to hold the larvae in suspension in a very precise pocket of sound so it's a specific and you frequency because specific frequency yeah. to create the pockets yeah. so like i say just just type sonic levitation okay. into into youtube it's it's unbelievable so cool Funny. and you'll see people putting drops of water and it just levitating in in midair yeah. um so this technique we um for insect work we try to apply this to, to larval work you mm. then have to fire a laser at the subject and so with the insect work you'd fire the laser at the insect and then the the meter then detects the laser bouncing back and if it bounces back at a different frequency and you can do this at nanometer scale mm -hmm. so you can fire at an individual hair of an insect and you if you put it into a completely soundproof room so bristol university has this crazy soundproof room has 16 tons of of um of uh uh, foundation so there's no vibration within the room mm -hmm. but it's the craziest room because no sound bounces back mm -hmm. so it yeah, just completely weird. screws up your senses yeah so um i'm getting completely sidetracked yeah. here but it was we'll, we'll get back cool, to cool experiment yeah it's like sensory deprivation to one, one exactly. degree of it. But, it, but, yeah. it but ultimately we're firing a laser at a larvae playing different reef sounds and recording how that was responding mm -hmm. to the different mm -hmm. reef sounds. Yeah, and so we think that's one of Yeah, there may be a, like a really simple way to have it respond as opposed to being like, let's play a soundtrack of a reef, <laughs> of a healthy reef. It might just be frequencies, yeah. right? It's, it's a more yeah. basic thing than you think. 
Yeah, and so we've seen larvae drop out of the water as a result of sound, mm -hmm. and then the the microbiome associated with the CCA seems to be that trigger to their metamorphosis. Okay. And so the, this picture here, you've got a bunch of uh, cropper attenuous um, primary polyps that are, are settled over the last sort of couple of days, basically. Yeah, yeah. and you said that uh, coralline algae is is kind of a surface that's super, you know, you know, ideal for them. And then, as far as the microbiome of that rock, I, I would imagine like it would be hard for eggs to larvae to settle. Oops, in a system that has a whole bunch of problem algae or something like you need really good biofilms and surfaces. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, definitely. The this I've got slides to sort of describe this a little bit later, but the the CCA is a necessary evil, and the CCA does not want a coral living on top of it. So they have loads of mechanisms to get rid of these things. Whether they'll they can sloth off their epithelial uh, layer, a bit like a sarcophyton, slothing that off, mm. and then that gets rid of all the primary polyps or some of the CCA that I have either in my home system or, or at the Horniman is really aggressive and it goes into over, overdrive oh, and crazy. basically in, engulfs and kills the, the juvenile. So CCA, do you but mean can, like Celsius coralline algae? Is that, I'm guessing that's yeah, yeah, what that yeah. stands for. Okay. So in the, in, in the um, scientific world, it's called CCA, crustose okay. coralline algae, yeah. basically coralline algae, yeah. basically. Um, so yeah, the next thing you then, you have to settle polyps. Um, so then we need, uh, the, the corals then need to uptake the zooxanthellae. Yeah. Now there's two transition modes. Um, so Symbodinium ace is, is what, uh, you know, the research community now uh, call uh, zooxanthellae, but we, we still call it zooxanthellae in the aquarium industry. And um, It's going to be a hard one to, to knock if we have to start calling yeah, it something it's, else. It's, we already remembered yeah, that yeah. word. It was hard yeah. enough. <laughs> the the zooks, yeah. 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 Um, but you, you have either vertical or horizontal transmission. Hmm. So something like a Pacillopora that is a brooder is a vertical transition uh, transmission. So the parent gives the zooxanthellae to the larvae. Yeah. So it already inoculates. Yeah. Where all acropora are horizontal. They have to acquire those zooxanthellae from the yeah. water column. And so when you settle your corals, it's really important that you have to have um, individuals of the same species, adults, fragments, whatever, so that the Symbodiniumaceae clades because there's different uh, groups of zooxanthellae and those different groups are associated with different species of coral, right? Yeah. There's not just one, there's, there's many of them. Yeah. Um, and so these are being shed into the water all the time. Our protein skimmers yeah. are pulling those out, yeah. but the, the parents are just chucking them out as the populations are increasing. So there's a wash of zooxanthellae yeah. running through the system all the time. And basically the, the primary polyp between some seven to 10 days, will acquire that and it does it through ingestion. I've got some slides a little bit later just to kind of describe, I think I put them in there, um, the mechanism oh, of those are really how cool. we think these ones come how up we here. Think that's good. So yeah, I mean, that was a big question for me because you, you kind of answered that, that they, they kind of need to take in zooxanthellae of the same, from the same species. But is that always mm -hmm. the case or do you see, you must see some cross species taking in zooxanthellae from the other? They, they can take in more than one clade. Mm -hmm. um, 
And there's been some really neat work on this looking at, because different clades have different properties. Some are really thermally tolerant, some are really productive. Um, So that each one has, you know, its own niche um, and its own role to play. So there's been some great work done out in in, uh, the States, in Miami, looking at um, certain clades will upregulate during bleaching and other ones will be booted out, but Mm -hmm. they'll keep a super low concentration of them inside so they don't pollute the coral. Mm -hmm. And then when conditions become favorable, the ones that are bleaching tolerant will be down-regulated and the other ones will be up-regulated. So yeah. there's multiple clades can be within a single species, but generally, you're, you're a crop retenuous in Australia has a type C1 in it. So mm-hmm. if you try and put a D clade in it, it won't be uptaken. Okay. Uh, it has okay. to be C1. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I wondered about um, essentially, you know, it's it's kind of a band-aid for the, the problems, you know, with, with, the environment and, and reefs bleaching, but it's like, could we essentially like design more resilient zooxanthellae and implant it's, it in some of these reefs and have these corals taken in where they're more resistant to thermal events? It's 100% what's already happening. So yeah. uh, the Australia Institute for Marine Science with, with Madeline von Appen is leading this research and they've been doing that for quite a long time now. So, mm-hmm. and the great thing is the zooxanthellae, um, because the cells are dividing, pretty rapidly you can put them on the treadmill uh, because their their generation time is so quick and so you can start off with say australia you know 29.4 you're going to start getting into an amber bleaching um uh, situation Mm -hmm. but you can start ramping the temperature up pretty quickly in the zooxanthellae because the cells are dividing and the ones that can handle that rapid temperature rise are the ones that continue proliferating Mm -hmm. and exactly this type of work is happening where um, you've, you've got naive polyps that have no zooxanthellae and they've been inoculated with these, you know, robust, uh, climate-proofed zooxanthellae yeah. put into them. Yeah. And then, uh, so there's some amazing work going on on that. Yeah, because I think that's something, even, like, non-hobbyists don't really understand when they, they hear coral bleaching. Uh, they don't know, well, non-hobbyists and non-scientific people, they don't know that it's it's the corals losing the zooxanthellae typically and then it may die as a result of you know, the lack of energy that it's getting from that afterwards. But, you know, I think, you know, people just assume it's like the coral's just dead once it's bleached, but it's just, it's just kind of starved out, really. Right. Yeah, 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 100%. Yeah, I've got some slides a little bit later because it gets a little bit more complicated because the, the, the period of time in your life that you experience the stress also sets you up later in life. It's a bit like mm-hmm. us with our immunity. You know, if we as kids go and play around in mud and we're getting exposed to all the microbes, generally yeah. you, you'll look at you re- retain that immunity later in life. Yeah. If you are wrapped up in cotton wool and, and don't get exposed to that, then, you know, can you be exposed to you know, pathogens later in life? And we, we're seeing that exact same process happening with corals. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a slide about that, I think, a bit, a bit Okay, later. cool. Yeah, because coral microbiome is in my questions for you, too. So that's... Yeah. There's, there's a lot to go over so still. The, the next one is... <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the next one is um, like a green fluorescent protein. So one, one of the things... I've, I've been doing quite a lot of work with fluorescent imaging um, mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. And the first thing we see is these GFPs starting to form. And what we think is going on is this is a beacon. So... Um, 
by forming the GFPs, particularly in the mouth of the polyp, the zooxanthellia, it's like a moth being, you know, flying to a night at light, uh, a light at night. Um, The zooxanthellia attracted to this GFP in the mouth, and that's part of the mechanism of being ingested to begin with, and then passing through the gut wall into the, the tentacles uh, and the tissue of the coral. Okay, so, so that's the, the does zooxanthellae consume this fluorescent green protein, and then it's similar. No, no, the, the, no, the, the, the corals uh, make the GFP yeah. first. Yeah. That then becomes the beacon that the zooxanthellae swim towards. Oh, okay. They yeah. then get they get eaten by the coral. Yeah. And then that gets pushed into oh. from the gut of the coral into the into the polyp. I always wondered how the zooxanthellae actually get into the polyp. So that is an yeah. awesome way to think that, about it. It's the beacon the is gut. the fluorescent green protein. Yeah. Right. It's kind right. of like, hey, come over here, and then you go through the what's that giant thing in Return of the Jedi in Jabba's palace, the uh, the sarlacc yeah. or whatever. <laughs> there you go. It's exactly that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Boba Fett. All right. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, next picture. This is um, shot of a, a, a cropper tenuous. It's now Kentai from from Australia, and you kind of see those GFPs in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, the orange structures that you're seeing on here are, are the zooxanthellae already inoculated in the in the polyp there. Um, and I've been playing around. I've, I've been sponsored by Canon, which is pretty cool. Cool. And so we've got some amazing uh, camera kit that we've been playing around with. So this is just using a regular camera. And then the next shot um, is when we use a full spectrum camera. And so it really highlights the the. Um, the zooxanthellae much better because it's showing the red fluorescent proteins inside the zooxanthellae's mm. um, structure. So the you can still see the GFPs, the, the yeah. green fluorescent proteins in the coral, but the zooxanthellae are now being highlighted. Um, okay. And you yeah. see how that's proliferated through through the primary polyp. Awesome. So right in the center is the mouth, and then the tentacles are getting pulled in a bit because I'm frying the hell out of this thing with, with quite a lot of um, yeah. full-spectrum light under a under a microscope um yeah the next shot is supposed to be a 3d render but um again this is probably i don't know maybe two two weeks old now yeah uh the these polyps you can start seeing that we've gone just from the so the one at the bottom left is still a primary polyp as a single polyp Mm-hmm. But the other ones you can see are now creating the secondary polyp, so it's turning into the young colony, basically. Yeah, and they've gone pretty quickly from being a single colony organism to a multi-polyp organism. And these are Acropora, right. obviously. So you, the, this yeah. is yeah, Ac- Acropora melia, uh, Acropora muricata. So mm-hmm. I, I'm staring at the house now. This was shot in the in the kitchen. Um, and we've been working with with Miracata in the kitchen for for a couple of years now. Uh, the originally two Indonesian uh, genotypes that Vincent Chalius yeah. grew. Cool. Um, and these yeah. are these are offspring from those. Awesome. And then you know once we've got settlement, we know that corals go through something called a type three survivorship curve. So humans have a type one survivorship curve. We have very few offspring. We give lots of parental care. Corals are the exact opposite. They produce absolutely loads of eggs, zero parental care, as a very few of those make it through to adulthood. Mm-hmm. And so much of the work that we've been doing the last few years is understanding this, this post-settlement survivorship curve mm-hmm. and how can we um, 
develop different methods so that we increase the survival so we get more corals basically yeah, yeah. and that's that's really important from a coral restoration point of view that if we're going to restore vast areas of reefs we need to be producing hundreds of thousands of corals yeah and so a, a lot of my research over the last sort of eight years has been trying to develop techniques to to boost up that survival yeah. at, at each time point basically well and do you do you have a way to measure um you know say you're looking at a region of the great barrier reef and where a spawn occurred and you have this many i don't know square kilometers of coral that spawned and how much settlement you can measure a certain period later can you see trends in how successful the settlement was versus a previous year yeah, I mean, it's not work that I've done, but yeah, 100%, yeah. loads of work has been done on this where you'll put out giant uh, settlement plates mm -hmm. uh, and you can bring those in at set times. You obviously know when you've deployed them, you know when you've collected them. And so you can look at the species that have settled, you know, the percentage on each of those plates. And so lots of work has been done to look at that from one year to the next. Yeah. There was a really cool study actually where they, they, um, they spawned and reared a whole bunch of um, embryos. This was done out of colleagues at, out in Australia, Institute for Marine Science, and they put stains. So they dyed um, some green, some red, some blue, and then released them and saw how far they, oh, they, cool. uh, they yeah. went and settled. And then you could look at the, that ratio. It was really neat, neat cool. study that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. So... Like the next next slide, this was a this one of the chats on my PhD. Knowing that that once they're settled, they they the bottom uh, shot just shows the negative impacts of of CCA. So mm -hmm. you know, like I said, coralline algae does not want coral growing on top of I it. See that, so yeah. this this is just in the course of what we're in less than a month, like three weeks. This CCA has just gone into overdrive and engulfed all mm -hmm. of those. There's about four or five um, little uh, spat there that have just got completely engulfed. Yep. Pacinellia, which is this big red um, coralline algae, that that engulfs. Um, filamentous algae. So you know a lot of that mechanism, as we know from keeping keeping tanks, that once you get filamentous, it's almost like a it traps sediment and yeah. the sediment then fuels more of it. Yeah. And so all sedimentation of corals is a big no-no. Baby corals, yeah. it will completely kill them. It opens the door for for bacterial infections, to ciliates, to all of the stuff that will just completely wipe them out. Yeah. And so filamentous algae, sedimentation, cyanobacteria, diatoms, all will wipe them out. And so this got me thinking that, you know, one of the chaps on my PhD, I wanted to look at the uh, the role that different aquarium herbivores can play in controlling this. And initially I was going to look at um, looking at hermit crabs and whether we could co-culture hermit crabs with with uh, corals. But then I started thinking, well, actually urchins are probably a much better bet because they control all of these. They're oh, grinding yeah. everything down, yeah. grinding the whole lot down to rock. Mm -hmm. um, the downside to it is... Big urchins are rasping, yeah? And they yeah. will just eat a, a tiny one millimeter primary polyp like a piece of popcorn. Yeah, like and without so, even noticing, <laughs> probably. Exactly. Yeah. So I started thinking, well, maybe we could use micro herbivory, mm -hmm. but we would have to spawn sea urchins um, about two months before the spawn of the corals. <laughs> and yeah. that would give enough time to spawn the urchins um, 
get them through their larval stage, settle them, grow them out for a bit, and then they would be the right size to introduce with uh, the juvenile yeah. juvenile uh, corals. All right, so we're on the co-culturing that, that slide, yeah. right? Okay, so back in, nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the the idea behind it is if we could use juvenile urchins um, to co-rear with the juvenile corals, could they do all of the job that an urchin does that we want it to do to grind away every type of algae and keep the plug nice and clean, mm -hmm. but be small enough not to cause any physical damage to the juvenile coral? Mm -hmm. This was the sort of approach. So it took the next slide kind of looks at I started working with um, Mespilia globulus. So the tuxedo. Wait, tuxedo so that's urchin. a baby urchin on the tip of a pencil. Is that what I'm seeing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and this this next slide, I'll send this as a video, uh, okay. as a um, because there's two videos embedded into this. Um, basically, we we knew when uh, you know I ha I had a date that I knew that the Mediapora was going to spawn in November, and so I had to start working backwards uh, to spawn the sea urchins so that they would be the right size to co rear. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah, and it took me the. The first attempt failed, and the second attempt, I managed to kind of figure out the tweak in the culturing of the of the urchin. I can't believe but you figured out figure... how to culture urchins amongst all of this coral spawning. You're just like, oh, I'm going to have to do urchins now too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a bit obsessed when yeah. I have a yeah when I have a goal in mind. You know, this is the PhD. You had to just kind of go with it. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we use heat shock to to spawn the the urchins generally keep them like 27 and then chuck them in a 30, 31 degrees. Okay. And that rapid temperature change will, will trigger them to, to spawn. So the males go first, then the females. And you collect the gametes. You, um, with this top uh, picture, this, again, this this is an open source paper so people can, can read it and, mm -hmm. and if, if they want to. Um, but the top line of the sea urchin, this is the embryological development. Okay, so mm -hmm. they go through that cell division. At the end of it, they enter something called the uh, the echinopluteus stage. So the pluteus is the larval stage. That's the start of the larvae mm -hmm. of the urchin. So G um, is the start of that that larvae. This happens super rapidly in urchins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Okay. That top line is done in about 12 hours. So the whole embryogenesis is done in 12 hours. And then they're in G in the morning. So you spawn them, you come in the following morning, you've got these little guys zooming all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we do quite a lot of phytoplankton culturing. You have to feed them uh, different species of phytoplankton. And we've worked on different combinations now of different phytoplankton to shrink the, the, uh, the larval development time. Yeah. But then they, they settle after about, now they'll settle for us in about 14 days. Mm -hmm. And then it took about, yeah, about six weeks to then grow them up. And just to put it into context of scale, everything from A to P, as you know, A to yeah. uh, O is 100 microns. Oh, okay. So yeah. point, point, point 0.1 of a millimeter. Wow. <laughs> so they are really, really Teeny, small. Tiny. Yeah. And then... P that juvenile urchin there that scale bar is one millimeter so they mm -hmm. they got to about two millimeters and then that timed up for when the corals are spawned so I had you know about a thousand two millimeter urchins <laughs> wow that I could then I could then introduce with the juvenile corals yeah um and so all of this work 
took us up to the start of the experiment basically mm -hmm. and um the next the next slide just sort of shows basically what we did so we we had uh, four treatments. One was no grazing. It was our control. It was like a negative control. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at different grazing densities of urchins uh, that we put in with the corals. Mm -hmm. And so the, what we found is that the coral survivorship increased eightfold wow. when you co-rear with the highest density of urchins. Yeah. So brilliant. We we get more coral surviving. Yeah. Um, and so that's what the sort of you know left-hand graphs are, are showing. I just have a little but side not... question, but what do you do with all these urchins when they get too big? Are you just selling them back into the hobby or finding places for them? We, I mean, we... <laughs> thousand urchins. Pretty, pretty much we'd give them away yeah. to public aquariums. Okay. So yeah. uh, this was all pre-Brexit. So mm -hmm. loads of these ended up in European in aquariums. Europe. Yeah. Um, now, 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 we just give them away to anyone who's got reef tanks. Yeah. Generally, in public aquariums, is is yeah. what we would do. Cool. Um, what what we found though is not only did um, we get more survival, mm -hmm. but it had a huge impact on the growth of the coral. Because so the the central one showing the the coral growth, the two plugs at the bottom are the same age. Mm -hmm. So the one A um, is the size of a coral in the non-grazed control. And um, what's going on is the coral is just spending all of its energy fighting yeah, back that yeah. algae that's trying to kill it. Yeah. And so it uses all of its energy and it's tiny still. This is just like a you know a 19 mil frag plug, a standard, you know, ocean, ocean wonders frag plug. Mm -hmm. On the on the right hand side with B, you know, they are significantly bigger. Um so not only do we get more coral, they grow bigger. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a win-win by co-culturing. And then the, the sort of final, um, the, the urchin growth, what we found is, and this makes total sense, the more urchins you put in, the less food there is going around, and it stunts their growth. Mm -hmm. And so the, the size comparison is when you've got four urchins in a tank compared to 18 urchins in a tank, um, basically they, they just grow normally whereas the ones in the in a high density uh are keeping that tank so so clean yeah. that they're 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 resource starved basically yeah. so their their growth gets stunted yeah. so there's a happy medium you kind but, of need to meet well you know it depends whether you bother about the urchin or not mm -hmm. um you know mm -hmm. we we the whole purpose of this study was to look at coral survival and how do we boost yeah. up that yeah um so we're now taking this a step further. My um, my deputy at, at the Horniman is going out to Palau in, in about six weeks, and we're starting working with different species uh, out in Palau to also think about um, the collector sea urchin trypnuses is used for the sushi industry, for mm. the uni. Mm. Um, and so one of the things we're, we're trying to hypothesize with this is that restoration to become cheap we need to increase the scale at which we can deliver coral mm -hmm. and co-culturing does some of that you know we mm -hmm. we can boost up survival we can boost up growth but what if we then use a different urchin species like a collector sea urchin that once it's done its job in a restoration setting and we've produced loads more coral mm -hmm. can we then grow that out for the human food market yeah. and then you sell that as a product which then brings income into restoration, which yeah. pays for the restoration. I love so that. So this is a, 
we've designed out a new lab in Palau, so he'll be building that over a month. And then we've we've managed to secure another three years worth of funding, working with uh, an amazing team out in Palau at, at the Pickerick, um, uh, and also colleagues up at Newcastle University. So, you know, the idea is that it brings a completely different funding model for restoration practice. That's the idea. Yeah. And the aquarium tree could play a really important role in this as well. Yeah. You know, if we if we culture this at source rather than doing this in in Western countries, if we do it at source. We have a sustainable product that we can sell into the industry, and then we can boost your know, recovery of, of those systems in yeah. the same same way. I'm going to um, assume uh, that these types of urchins are native to Palau. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Because yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say if you're introducing an urchin from a different no 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 no, know, no. that's no no yeah. no no it's it's working with loop and actually there's a really important need to boost up the urchin fishery it's 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 a very common fishery mm -hmm. and it's really susceptible to overfishing that's yeah. exactly what's happened yeah so actually the population have been decimated so we need to boost up the natural population also boost up the coral wow, so it's, it's like, a win-win yeah it's like a double niche kind of thing that you found um yeah that's exactly. super cool and and like like the thing i was saying of say measuring a square space of of uh coral settlement and comparing from year to year Hopefully, if this urchin thing works, you're going to see those numbers of settlement more successful. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of these techniques actually come from work that's been done in Canada. Uh, there's a lot of work with uh, something called multi-trophic aquaculture. And it's looking at, um, you know, where the waste from one feeds another part of the food web. And so this is being done with fish, with shellfish and with seaweed. Hmm. And so you do all three together and you end up selling three products from a single process. Mm -hmm. And so that was the inspiration to try and do idea. this in the yeah. tropical tropical system. Cool. Which is which is really cool. Yeah. Okay, we're um, on the maximizing output. Maximize output. So another thing, how do we build up numbers? So this this is all stuff that I did in my kitchen. So this is my system at home at the bottom right. So I've got a uh, an SPS system at the the main display system and then the side tank i've got lps system going in there and so um this example is just looking at a cropper in miocarta like i said i got it from from vincent chalius in indo i've got two genotypes i've got like a green and a, a blue mm -hmm. genotype and they spawned in 2022 i reared just about an eighth of that because it was just mm -hmm. too much to cope with in that little yeah. tank so those I settle those on in d those are the the settled Frags? Yeah, the, these oh, actually, maybe. I then took them all into D, D and E. I then yeah. took them into the ornament and we, we grew them out of the ornament. Yeah. But A and B was done in my kitchen. So mm -hmm. what I did is I took 64 of these plat plugs. On those, after two months, there was 618 individuals. Mm -hmm. And then I just used a Griffin bandsaw and cut each individual one out, or as many as I could. Yeah. And the idea being that in a restoration setting, normally one plug gets planted out. Yeah. Now, it may be you've got 20 spat on there. Mm -hmm. And over time, you only end up with one coral because they will kill each other long term. Mm. So the maximum you could ever get from that if you plant them out too early is 64 plugs, which would be 64 corals. Mm -hmm. But by intervening two months in, we can boost up the, the numbers. And so we now have you know hundreds of, of these Muricata uh, juveniles just from a very small amount of the embryos cool. that were collected at, at home. So it's just kind of understanding as well where we can boost up numbers. Basically, that's what this slide is all yeah. about. 
Um, this slide, I don't know why I put this in. This was just closing the life cycle. So we, we've not only produced F1s from, mm. so we, we collect or buy in wild broodstock, create F1s. And then after three years, they become sexually mature to create the F2s. Yeah. That's um, just like a good summary of, of the what we've talked about so far, basically. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Then, then this is something we really stumbled across purely by accident, but we've done some really, really cool work, work with this. So the first morning was working with the Singapore corals. I had a one system which was, which was uh, programmed to replicate Singapore. Those individuals spawned in um, April. I then had two other systems, and the next experiment I was just working with Australian corals, but I didn't have anywhere to put the Singapore corals, so I kind of pushed them to the back of the system, mm -hmm. and then I bought, bought in Australian broodstock, which I put in all three systems. Now, Australia spawns in November, December. So the Singapore corals are already spawned in April. I then reprogrammed all of the systems to replicate Australia, bought the new broodstock in, and I was working with the Australian stuff in November, December. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't checking this, but what I end up finding is the Singapore corals then spawned again at the same time as the Australian oh, corals. Wow. So <laughs> this kind of leads back into what are the parameters? How many times can they spawn in a year? Mm -hmm. So I kept the Singapore corals on an Australian cycle, and they just jumped onto the Australian cycle. Mm. So then what we started playing around with is whether we could create intergeographical hybrids. Mm. So could we take eggs from Singapore and fertilize it with sperm from Australian corals? Yeah. And then we took that a step further to not only create intergeographical hybrids, but could you do intraspecific and interspecific? So we could do a higher synthesis, higher synthesis cross, but then we could create a higher synthesis meliopora cross from two different geographical mm -hmm. regions, wow. basically. And it, it took a couple of years to get the numbers that we needed. But the next slide is we then ran a thermal stress experiment. Okay, so okay. the idea being, and this again kind of shows them the power of ex-situ spawning. You could never do this in the field. Mm -hmm. You would never want to do it because you wouldn't want to take corals from Singapore and plant it in Australia. Whole world of ethical yeah, yeah, yeah. issues. Totally, that's, totally. That's not not what you would ever do but the ex-situ framework means we can really start delving into the underlying mechanisms of reproduction mm -hmm. singapore the top left graph shows how much warmer it is than australia so within the genetic code mm -hmm. of the individuals from australia from singapore they have naturally evolved to have more resilience than the australian corals. Yeah, yeah so we created these crosses of these outcross lines of singapore with australia australia of singapore both with hyacinthus both with mediapora and then we took the juveniles and we created the thermal stress event. And it's in the scientific world, it's called degree heating weeks. So we purposefully bleached all of the corals, not mm -hmm. just the adults, but all the juveniles. Yeah. We then killed everything and we uh, preserved it in liquid nitrogen. And we looked at something called the metabolomic profile. And so, uh, you know, everyone will have heard of genomics. It's the study of our genomes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's what makes us, yeah? Mm -hmm. You then have proteomics, which is how, well, actually, you then have transcriptomics. Transcriptomics is how your genome is transcribed into a function, often making a protein. The study of the proteins in your body at this moment in time is called proteomics. Mm -hmm. 
Then as the proteins break down, you have the metabolites, and that's the study of the metabolomics. And it's the most fine level detail of omics work that is currently available. So what, what we end up doing is killing all the corals and looking at the metabolomic profile of those individuals. And the upshot of this, and we're nearly finished with this paper to publish it, is we found that the juveniles are really plastic. And so mm -hmm. it didn't matter whether they had Australian genes or, or Singapore genes, but they are able to cope with a stress event much better than the adults. Mm. And so when we start thinking about the impacts of climate change, if a juvenile is settled in a year that is then subjected to a warming event, mm -hmm. if it has survived, it has basically gone through that treadmill and it will be able to refer back to that later in life. Mm. And it will hopefully be more resilient. This is what yeah. we, we think we're seeing, basically. Yeah, I actually saw a lecture by uh, Dr. Ruth Gates, maybe about eight or nine years ago. I know she's since passed away, but um, I think she was with the Institute of, of, of Hawaii. Um, and she mm -hmm. was talking about coral bleaching and how you would see one specific specimen out of a group that was in fairly close proximity where one or two or a small percentage would not bleach at all. They would look almost completely fine, whereas other ones would have completely bleached. So the question was, what's the difference? And I think that may come back to what you were just talking about. hundred percent. This is, you know, Ruth worked with Madeline von Appen out in Australia. Those two blazed the trail. They're mm -hmm. the ones that kind of got got the whole world going on this path. And there's been some amazing studies that, that Madeline has carried on uh, publishing. Uh, James Guest up at Newcastle um, has done a lot of work on assisted evolution now. Um, and it's we're getting close and closer to understanding where these parameters are. And uh, mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing some positive results as you know, from it. Yeah. Then, then sort of leading on, we kind of talked about earlier about, you know, if you had just a single individual of each species, you, they won't self-fertilize. So you can start playing around with this, uh, this interspecific hybridization. Mm -hmm. And this was an example we, we did a, a few years ago where we got Meliopora and we had a, I think this one was Grandis. Um, and the next slide on hybridization kind of explains that self fertilization blank mm -hmm. and so on the right hand side of the picture we just got some of the meliopora uh, we 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 isolated the gametes from that and left it to one side and showed yeah. zero fertilization yeah we did the same thing with the staghorn mm -hmm. and had zero fertilization yeah we then created a meliopora meliopora cross and got a 90 percent fertilization rate mm -hmm. but then what we did is we we um we found that if we took the eggs from Meliopora, we could get a fertilization from the grandest um, sperm. Mm -hmm. It was a low fertilization. We only hit 17.14% uh, fertilization. Yeah. yeah. But it shows that there are possibilities of creating hybrids, basically. Yeah. yeah. And That's this, super this, cool. this, I think has massive, massive potential for the trade in the oh, future. Absolutely. That that huge, makes me think about the future of where this hobby is going because yeah, I mean nature we, is has provided us, you know, a lot of really amazing corals, but if we can start manipulating and putting together certain and, corals, I mean just imagine. And hundred percent. And it's really important to stress here, this isn't gene editing or anything like this. This mm -hmm. goes on in nature. Okay. Mm -hmm. This 
100% goes on in nature. It's just understanding what goes on in nature and being able to capitalize on that. Uh, I have to say, hybridization, most of the time you get a zero, uh, zero success. Mm -hmm. So I like to say, I've, I've probably tried between 80 and 100 different pairwise crosses mm -hmm. of every permutation you can possibly imagine vast majority of it doesn't work and you end up losing all your gametes so it's a big trade-off yeah i generally will only try and muck around with hybridization is if, I, if i've only got one individual of each species and i know i can't do any fertilization of a medium poor or a media poor uh, yeah because the majority of the time you're going to end up with a pile of goo the following day that you've got to chuck away yeah and so you if if you've got an opportunity you know you're going to get fertilization you wouldn't muck around with hybridization because yeah. you'll waste a whole year's worth of access to the gametes i would imagine you have a priority based checklist when you have a spawn and and that may not exactly. be at the top of the checklist that's more the hobbyist side of you like kind of in, and also like you say probability exactly. is not as not as good so yeah but that's fun yeah that's the fun thing that's the fun stuff for me yeah totally um the so the next slide kind of just shows you how they're starting to grow out mm. unfortunately you know i lost all of these I had a system issue and mm. and we lost them all but you can see at this i think they're probably about six months old in mm -hmm. the bottom picture and you can see the hybrid has got some features that look like a media pourer but it's got that blue background of mm. a stag um mm. and again it, it, it kind of starts lending the question of what is inherited from the maternal root and what's inherited from the paternal root. Mm -hmm. And so this is the next stage where you can start playing around with to say, yeah. oh, if color is inherited from the paternal root, then maybe I want to choose, you know, there's yeah. all sorts of ramifications yeah. to this. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And you know exactly you start who, going down a rat if, if you know you're taking specifically the sperm from the millipora and the eggs from the, the staghorn or whatever, you, you know who the mother and father were. So there you go. Exactly. But you'd have to replicate that exactly study. That. You'd have to do that same matchup multiple times and invert it as well to start to be able exactly. to see why. Yeah. The the inversion didn't work uh, the other way. Okay. So the, the staghorn eggs didn't fertilize at all with the mediapora um, the mediapora sperm. Mm -hmm. Mediapora seems to be the dirty girl of the reef. So the majority of the hybrids. <laughs> Have have come using meliopora eggs, yeah, and sperm from different colonies, okay. uh, different species. It often doesn't work the other way around. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. So, the, I suppose the you know, a lot of that was all sort of background work that we we've done at the Hallerman. We continue doing the Hallerman yeah. after my PhD. Myself, Mike, and Vince, we, we co-founded the Coral Spawning Lab. And we were, Mike and I were getting so many emails from, from, from people all around the world going, you know, how do you how do you do the spawning? You know, how do you um, you know, can you help us set up our so we basically co-founded the, the Coral Spawning Lab to start building systems and send them uh, around the world, predominantly for research and for reef restoration. So a client will basically so we fabricate them in the UK. And we've got our standard off-the-shelf spawning um, system mm -hmm. with embryo rearing. We've also taken those and put them into shipping containers um, so that you get a, a lab in the box with multiple spawning systems. And then we've started sort of developing novel grow-out systems so we can really start scaling up. So mm -hmm. the, the sort of raceway system that you see there, that can take 30,000 uh, plugs 
in that one system. Wow. And two two of these are currently on a ship uh, heading out to the Maldives at the moment. So we'll be fitting these in in hopefully April in the Maldives. So it's a mo mobile lab. It's ready to be set up on location. Exactly. Yeah, cool. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool. And so, and the whole point is trying to, you know, get Exitu Sporting in the hands of as many people as possible so we can get as many people as possible rebuilding reefs, basically. Mm -hmm. So the kind of, um, you know, the the map just, we, we co-founded this three years ago. We really thought we might sell one or two systems and it's been mental. Really? Three years. We've sent, we've sent 70 systems around the world. So each of these white dots kind of represent where they've gone out to yep. so far. Mm -hmm. Um and probably half of those are for reef restoration uh, projects. Yeah. The other half are for pure research to understand, yeah. um, you know, reproduction at a better level. So there's quite a lot in Middle America. So Carnegie yeah. Institute, Stowers Institute, they're doing it for for um, gene editing work. So mm -hmm. using a technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which you you basically can take parts of the genome out and insert mm -hmm. different genes. And basically understand which genes are responsible for thermal resilience, for instance. Yeah. That's the, the long-term goal. Yeah. If you and if you do that, can you then go, well, that individual has got that gene, and that's that's the one we want to breed from. Mm -hmm. uh, th so these are the sort of platforms. Uh, yeah, awesome. I um, see a few and looks like a few in Florida too there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Moat Marine Labs and and uh Coral Vita and mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of folks are using for restoration work. So the kind of next side is, you know, I often think the exit you spawning is like the broader umbrella and then sitting underneath that are sort of three sub areas of which you can use exit you spawning. And so we, we know it works. I, you know, I think the latest tally is 46 species that we've managed to spawn mm -hmm. from Caribbean reefs to Indo-Pacific to Red Sea it's it's so the the methodology can be applied at many different locations yeah but once you've got the platform of of predictable spawning there's still under these these sort of sub umbrellas reproduction the fundamentals of reproduction there's still loads we don't know about which species spawn at which windows um you know what are the the parameters of hybridization all of those types of things mm -hmm. Lots of the work, like I sort of described in previous slides, is about how do we increase productivity? How do we get more out of these spawns? And then the unique power of ex-situ spawning, how do we start interrogating you know, the environmental parameters that, that trigger spawning? You know, feeding, you know, what type of feeding regime will mm -hmm. produce stronger eggs? All of these are possibilities that we can start rolling out, really. Yeah, and I have questions about feeding, but I want to probably get through your slides and Ooh. then see how we are for Ooh. time, because we might need to do a part two and talk more methodology on the next one, Yeah, if that works better I'm... for you. but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't mind either way. I'm yeah. sorry, I, I, I get, I rabbit on and no, it's fine. I talk too yeah. much. Totally yeah. fine. Uh, I so want you to talk. To, I want you to talk too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So back back to talking. No, yeah. So you know the spawning in the Craig's family kitchen. So after my PhD, um, I basically got a spawning system put in the family kitchen to mm. to teach the boys about it, just to have a bit of fun with it. You know, play mm. around with stuff that was outside what was being dictated by some of the research mm -hmm. um, and just really understand if this was to be a mainstream thing in a hobby, if I could do it in my family kitchen, 
which is very it is very different to doing it in the lab yeah because you've got the you've got the dinner table there you know mm. you you don't have a running water supply of seawater it's just more complicated yeah but yeah. if i could do it here then the possibly this would open up uh, for other people playing around and, and t- start spawning it so we We've spawned 12 species in the kitchen, which has been pretty cool. Yeah. We've done a few world firsts, which which I'm going to go on and, to, and which, is, which is pretty amazing. And these species spawned in the kitchen, how many of those did you have successful settlement out of? Um, I've done... Uh, we've done eight... I think eight of those. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So it is possible. It is definitely possible. 100%. (laughs) You know, I've got the world's first cattleophilia, uh, homophilia growing in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, People can do this at home. That that is the take home message. If anyone takes anything from this, go and do it. You know, it's, uh, this is going to be, the clownfish in 10 years time people yeah. will be doing this mainstream 100 percent. yeah yeah and I, i'm curious it, i mean we might be getting to this in some slides coming up but um some of these other species like the cataphilia um the micromusa lords um how different were they to spawn and predict versus the acropora because you obviously started with acropora right started with acropora because it's the easiest to check you, know, you break a branch off, you don't lose the yeah, quality. Yeah. Um, if we if we go to the next, uh, shall I pick that up in the next couple? Yeah, of sure. Slides? Yeah, let's yeah? get to that when we get to that. So yeah, we're looking so, at this slide of your system in a graph. Here. The system just yeah. just looking at so top graph is just saying you know I I kind of um, mimic Australia. Um, this was actually uh, a presentation I did at Magna for spawning the 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 LPS uh, spawning mm-hmm. scollies and. And the cats. So with with that, most of the acapora work I've done with Australia, we focus on a you know I program the system based on Lizard Island normally, which is a more northern Great mm-hmm. Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. A lot of the collection of the LPS, uh, we can't get any of this in the UK anymore. It's all banned. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was all done before the CITES ban. Mm-hmm. I was focusing on Halfway Island, uh, which is quite southern in the Great Barrier Reef, so it's much colder. It gets really freaking cold, in fact, mm. um, down in, you know, it, it will hit 17 degrees. Okay. That's how cold yeah. it is. Yeah. And and I actually had to modify the, the temperature profile because I was bleaching all of the SPS, uh, the SPS um, because they were getting too cold. Yeah. I was, I started losing a couple of fish and I was like, oh my God, and the LPS was fine with it. Yeah, I got down to about eighteen degrees, yeah. and all the mon the Montiporas were the first to bleach. Yeah, they just went absolutely white with cold bleaching. Yeah, just so any um, uh, anybody in the US is listening, that's that's definitely Celsius, not Fahrenheit. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. yeah. Well, I did this as a US tour, so it's got yeah. the the. Um, I think I put that. Oh no, 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 it is in the Celsius in there. Yeah, I actually got down to about nineteen degrees. So. Yeah. It got it got pretty cold. Yeah. Um, the system runs on the Triton method, um, and, and I do quite a lot. Of, um, I've slowly added more trace element dosing yeah. over time. Yeah. And so currently, I'm dosing iodine, vanadium, manganese, strontium, um, uh, iron, 
I haven't, I, I did uh, Flore for a bit, but I've stopped doing that. I, I probably, li- I was listening to the podcast you did with Mike recently. Yeah. I probably need to pick pick back up on the Yeah, fluoride. and Fluoride has and this it, relationship with iodine that seems to be, you know, really important. But uh, maybe your levels right. aren't super low anyways, I'm not sure. But for a lot of people, no, they are. They are, yeah. It, it does seem yeah, to be yeah. an element that gets depleted quite quickly. And also chrome, yeah. chromium is another one for me that, seems to to go which i don't see in your list of elements there i after this i did actually start doing chromium and cobalt um i only did it for a bit and stopped doing that um but maybe i need to pick it up again i mean certainly for me when i started putting an iron in a nickel i really noticed a, a I mean, the refugium one grows like mad as soon mm-hmm. as the iron iron goes in. And really, it was sort of listening to, to stuff on BRS, talking about how we need to forget, not completely forget, but rather than focusing on the coral, focus on the zooxanthellae. Keep the zooxanthellae yeah. happy, and then everything else falls into place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think a lot that's what a lot of this trace element really, really supports supports that. yeah yeah because people think oh you're this is for the corals it's like no well the think about the coral as a hybrid organism and that that zozentelli is almost this organism in itself you're taking care of and then the corals it's other thing yeah and you know yeah so then looking at lighting so the the lps system on the side has got a gen 5 on um at the time i still don't actually have one but um i couldn't do the seasonal programming of light cycle with the gen 5 and the apex so mm-hmm. in the way that the lps system on the side uh, had the photo period was uh, uh overspill of light from the sps system so there's a little gap so okay. they still had the right photo period yeah but the gen 5 i would set the photo period to match the shortest day of the year and then the sps system followed the full cycle but had light spill over to the uh, lps okay very low light level pro- pro- probably too low but like 30 micromoles which is which is probably too low but um yeah i'm sure they could do better uh, going up a little bit and then you know this is the picture of the the system in the kitchen um and then just kind of i i've been working with scollies for a couple of years um and it wasn't until sort of 2021 that we managed to really, cr- really crack it. I'd spent about three years before that, um, and really nothing was known about when these things spawn. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about an acropora, you break a branch off, you look at the cross-section, and you look at the colour of the egg, and then that would tell you, if you're working with a species where there's no data, yeah. you would look at the colour of the egg, then you would know oh, it's going to go after the next full moon, and that would give you your window of time. Obviously, the challenge with these is you've got one polyp. Yeah. <laughs> and those are pretty expensive. And yeah, this is no stuff I was yeah. doing. This is stuff I was doing at home and funding myself. And so Tropical Marine Center uh, at, um, in the UK as a, a wholesaler, they were absolutely amazing and supported this project um, mm. in terms of bringing the colonies in when I, when I was asking them. Basically, I ordered colony uh, polyps in. I think I got about four or four or six in each shipment mm-hmm. and 50% of those, the day they arrived, I chopped in half <laughs> um, and killed them oh, basically yeah. yeah, looking for, looking for the eggs. Cause that's, that's the hard miles that yeah. you've got to do yeah. to identify the window time. And so this, this next slide just shows what you would do with an acropora. Um, 
breaking those branches. And then uh, you know, the next one is looking at the, the home affiliate. So mm-hmm. determine that reproductive mode costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's quite a painful process that the day they arrive, you just chop half of them in half. Yeah, but um, un- until you come across they- those those eggs or the, what is it, the spermatophores? Yep. Um, yep. So you're, you're just not going to know where it is in that cycle period. But like literally nothing was known about this. It could have mm-hmm. been a brooder. It mm-hmm. could have been gonagoristic, could have male, female polyps. So this was the first time of seeing eggs and sperm developing in a polyp. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, the process of doing that was like, brilliant, right? We're dealing with a hermaphrodite. We're now, we've got a color of new site, which then starts telling us when the spawning is going to happen. So it took me three years of doing this to kind of identify the window. Mm-hmm. And then ran histology on it so the next slide just sort of shows histology and mm-hmm. when you look at a um uh um you know a scully skeleton it basically has the finger the scepters up like this in between each scepter this is where the gametes are developing in between the scepter and say in between my little fingers is the mouth mm-hmm. there's no gametes develop in the middle uh, mm-hmm. but then as you go out to the sides of the polyp in between each scepter is where the gametes are developing. And that's what you're seeing with this histology, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately, because I couldn't afford it, and in, a, in hindsight, I should have, because we can't get hold of these at all in the UK now, which is absolutely gutting. If I'd done this with master grades, yeah. this would have been absolutely <laughs> amazing. Those wouldn't be but the ones you would have I... chopped in half, but but once you got it figured no, out. sure. Yeah. But because I was dealing with a low price point, I basically was buying the cheapest things I could Mm -hmm. and then managed to get spawning. And what I really wanted to do with this process is document the whole uh, reproduction of the species. So while I wanted to also rear some, but I had to balance between preserving. So to run the scanning electron microscopy to to document the embryological development, you have to preserve the, the eggs. And so this slide here, um, or this this picture just shows the falcon tube. And I basically mm-hmm. just stayed up all night after fertilization, taking a small sample of, of embryos every hour for um, basically it dropped down after 12 hours. You have to do it every, every hour for the first 12 hours. So you work through the night, mm-hmm. then have a few hours off and then, then try and take it every four, every six hours. And so... This next slide shows the the egg sperm bundle breaking apart and the the sperm liberating out. So the, those are the yeah. sperm cells, you know, liberating. So it's a sperm, have... sperm egg bundle. So it's not like with the acropora where the eggs rise to the surface and the sperm is just below. It's bundled bundled together. No, it, it does it does it exactly does the, the same, same thing. thing. Okay, okay. But with the scolly, it releases a single large bundle with mm. hundreds and hundreds of eggs, oh, okay. thousands of eggs. Oh, okay. So with an acropora, you might get eight to 12 eggs mm-hmm. per polyp. Mm-hmm. With the scolly, it's producing hundreds, okay. thousands of eggs in a single large bundle. Wow. About the size of your little fingernail Yeah, um, is how, how big the bundle is. So this is then showing the fertilization, mm-hmm. um, that early cell division. So, you know, the, this is sort of the, the crease in the embryo. Mm-hmm. Um and then just mapping out that full embryological development um, right the way through wow. to the larvae. Mm-hmm. And they are much quicker than a cropper. So mm. as a general rule of thumb, if this is very general, 
but the size of the oocyte, so an acropa is around 400 microns, um, so 0.4 of a millimeter, mm-hmm. and that's four days of development. Uh, a scoli is about 200 microns, so is a, um, a galaxia, uh, so are acans, so they have two days of development. So it's a very, mm-hmm. very rough rule. The number of microns equals the number of day of development. Okay. Basically, so so these guys develop much quicker, but they're super small compared yeah. to the um, yeah compared to the uh, the the the, uh, the acros. I guess that makes sense because also they're like a non-colonial coral, right? They're just one pollen, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it's just what drives it because galaxia is obviously colonial yeah but it has a super, super yeah that's small true as well that's true um <laughs> i don't know what really drives that and yeah. then it was sort of documenting out the 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 grow out of these individuals so we've still got mm. a bunch of them in the tank but unfortunately because they were brown corals i've just got brown babies yeah. there's no wow factor to the babies but it was pretty damn cool you know documenting this for the first time mm-hmm. and i really need to get off my ass and write the full uh, scientific paper on this because um i've documented this and then kind of moving on to the catalophilia i w- was working with this species at the same time um and this slide just the next slide just kind of shows the the adults in the little buckets uh those are the big egg sperm bundles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're really messy with catalophilia they yeah. they are huge oh yeah huge. yeah they're like, like a mass the size, they can get the size of the whole top of your thumb oh, wow. basically yeah. Uh, and that they have thousands of eggs in each bundle. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, a single bundle coming out of each mouth, but you can have multiple mouths on the on the colony. Wow. Um, this next one just shows that really messy bundle. So it's not yeah. tight together. All the sperm is, and you can see the number of eggs in, in that one bundle. Mm-hmm. And then again, uh, you know, I documented the full embryological development of, of those guys. Um and then this is sort of one week post settlement. You can see what they they look like on a on a little um, tile, yeah. and they're just kind of mapping out. You know, I, I don't know how many days this is, but they start developing that GFP, um, and then lighting it in different uh, different ways to highlight the GFP proteins. So does and then the GF- it kind of grows GFP out. come before the zooxanthellae then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, th- this picture is actually a bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're they're fully inoculated at this stage, mm-hmm. um, you know they've they're made their calcium carbonate cups, yeah, and then just kind of documenting the the growth of these. So I, I suppose one of the take home messages of this, one of the things, you know, that I am pretty passionate about using that system in there is to understand what the parameters of whether sexual reproduction could be used as a sustainable way of producing LPS for the trade. That, that mm-hmm. was my goal with doing this. Mm-hmm. And really, it's always been thought that the growth rate of LPS is super, super slow in the wild. I don't think it is at all. They grow really bloody fast. Yeah. So this, you know, this catalophilia is a dime there after 11 months. Mm-hmm. You know, I, at some point I'll post out on Instagram the, the biggest one, which is now, I don't know, is that two, two years old? I mean, you wouldn't notice the difference between an adult that you've brought in and, and one that's two years old. They mm-hmm. grow fast. Mm-hmm. All, all the scollies are now this sort of size at two years old. Definitely easily marketable size. So 100% this can be done. I think you don't have to wait, you know, 
the thought is, you know, was it going to take 10 years to grow these out to any size that could be sold? Not at all. Yeah. They grow very rapidly. What's really exciting with the Coral Sporting Lab, we've got a, a grant uh, where we're working in Indonesia to explore this with the Indonesian government um, to really kind of open this up as a new method um, that, that, that can produce a, a sustainable source of corals into into the future. Yeah, because not... the, the restoration efforts are based on fragmentation. Um, and like right. you were saying, these juvenile stages may potentially be more resistant um like depending on yeah like so depending on if they're more from a from a thermal higher thermal period or whatever so you might be able to implant these corals that are a little stronger too that are native to that area yeah and also you know through the sexual reproduction every individual is an individual genetic in it you know mm -hmm. a, a unique genome in its own yeah. right yeah and so you're you're increasing that genetic diversity which is what's needed for the future proofing of the reef yeah totally totally okay yeah. well that's the downside is it's cool. it's super bloody small when it starts yeah and so it takes a long time to get the structural diversity mm -hmm. so asexual and sexual have a role to play in tandem yeah. basically yeah and then you know the, this is just some of those babies up against the adults um and the adults spawned for me last year and i got a few um if you, uh, the way I had the system set up, I wasn't really focused on catalophilia, so I missed most of it. But I got a bit of fertilization and, and mm. a few juveniles coming through. Yeah. Um, then Micromusa, I've been playing around with this for the last few years. Um, not haven't been as successful with this. And I think it's really difficult doing your day job, looking after a public aquarium and then trying to keep the energy levels up yeah. to do it at home as well. Yeah. So sometimes you drop the ball on things and... I'm going to revisit this at some point. Yeah, Micromusa. Yeah, because Micromusa, I mean, there's so many color variants that if you can start picking just some really nice yeah. ones. Although I'm, that being said, again, they're from Australia, so you probably can't get more into the UK easily. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. Just, just a little you, thought, you... actually, if anybody is listening from the UK um, and they have Scolies or Micromusas and they you know, potentially want to do some trading with you or something like that, that might be a good way for them to oh, pay you some stock. Oh, my God. So, if anybody is holding on to a, amazing. yeah, like a batch of scolies and they go, okay, give them to Jamie for a year and then he'll give you some really cool morphs, you know, all, a bunch of babies once, once that, he gets to the next phase. That would be insane. I would love that. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's see. Hopefully somebody reaches out to you. <laughs> amazing. I mean, LPS is the thing that I'm focusing on now. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I've, I've got a bit of an obsession with it now. I feel like I've worked with that crows for a lot. And actually, there's still there's some cool stuff we're going to come up with the acros in a second. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> yeah. there's still there's still loads of cool stuff. Yeah. And then Blastomusa is something we we spawned at the Horniman. These were um, so we've still got brood stock of these. We're just waiting now for the F ones to become sexually mature uh, to create the F two generation, um, which which will be cool. That'll close this close the life cycle of this species for the first time. Yeah. That's I think awesome. we're actually still the first to, to spawn and rear these. I think this was a yeah. world first a few yeah. years ago. Amazing. Um, we don't need to go into the... Oh, very quickly, I'll go into the unique power because we talked about the phase shifting. I'm going to run yeah. through this quickly because we are going okay. on, aren't we? Yeah. So we kind of ran... We use Galaxia fasicularis um, reproduction and use it as a model organism. So we, we publish a paper that it's a really great coral to work on from scientific point of view it has a really cool reproductive mode so there's gonagristic 
male and female colonies, and then we have hermaphrodites. Hmm. Galaxia sits in the middle. It's something called pseudogynodiasi. And basically, okay. which is a horrible, horrible term, but you basically have female colonies that just produce egg bundles. Mm-hmm. But the male colonies produce egg sperm bundles, but the eggs are completely infertile. Their only function is buoyancy. Whoa, so galaxia <laughs> are are an evolutionary stepping stone between mm-hmm. gonagoristic and hermaphroditic. They just haven't made the full transition. So it's evolution in action. Yeah. Um, they're really reliable spawners. Um, they are a brilliant species to muck around with. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at the inducing multiple spawns each year, this was this study that we started manipulating the time of year that we wanted spawning to take place. So mm. the top experiment was when we were just manipulating temperature, the bottom experiment with galaxia, we basically took all the environmental parameters and moved them and that we could completely break the natural spawning cycle of them and make them spawn at any time of the year. And so you, you can basically completely control reproduction exit you that's mm-hmm. the take home mm-hmm. message awesome. and then just finishing up some of the future and this is something that i've had a, i've been playing around with sort of um a bit over the last i don't know six seven years i stumbled across this um yeah probably about eight maybe about eight years ago um is spliced coral so grafted mm-hmm. corals yeah um and i've I've been really intrigued by the mechanism of what is a grafted coral. And I actually think what we're seeing here, and it's not a thing I know now, 100%, that this is actually two genotypes sharing the same entity. So this isn't a a protein bleed or something like this. Yeah. We we started um, working with how can you specifically breed splice corals during these reproductive events. And so it really comes down to the way that the corals settle. And so mm-hmm. the next slide is just showing a bunch of different examples of, of spat that settle. Now the larvae all will aggregate to specific areas on the settlement tile. Yeah. And they will share space mm-hmm. um, for quite a period of time because they have no immune system when so they it's first... at that early stage that they're basically more open to share like essentially a wall with another yeah with another coral of that same Ex- species exactly that and cool. so they aggregate together mm-hmm. and there's been some really nice research to show that aggregation is a survival strategy because mm-hmm. if you aggregate together if one polyp has grabbed a bit of food it shares it across the aggregation if you settle on your own you're basically out on your own. You're fighting on your own. Yeah. So you don't have the protection until you hit a certain size where you're strong and you can defend yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an evolutionary adaptation that corals can share resources in the early stages. Mm-hmm. The next slide actually then starts showing the what's called the allogeneic responses. And this is no different to um, you know, human transplant of, of putting a kidney in someone, you know, you have mm-hmm. to be genetically similar enough yeah. from the donor to receive it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what's happening here, the, the, these are five polyps of a cropper hyacinthus and I've labeled up each of the polyps one to five. Mm-hmm. What you're seeing here is one and two and three and four are rejecting each other. 
Mm. So where the stars are, you can see there's a divide in the skeletal mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. So if if this were to play out and it turns out that one is the most dominant and strongest, it would eventually go around and kill the other four. Mm -hmm. But what you're seeing in two, three, and five, they are genetically similar enough to form something called a trichimera. Mm. So there is three genetic entities within a single, a single uh, mass. Yeah. Now a whole bunch of things can play out here. It may be like I say, number one is strongest, and it kills everything else. And it ends up with just number one. Mm -hmm. It could be that two, three, and four, five kill one and four yeah and then they continue as a chimera mm -hmm. and this is the root of splice corals this is how they this is what forms them so what is collected on a reef is just that this has happened on a reef and it just so happened as a made as a bleed basically yeah. i don't know whether i put the i haven't put the slide in here um, well, and I I've wonder, too, if you were to have a tiny bit of, of a splice, like, come in on a coral, um, like, could it, like, one tends to be more prominent, but, you know, you can change that ratio by fragmenting it and, and essentially kind of favoring one color over another one, right? Exactly. Yeah. The... I mean, I've, I'm, I've got a meeting fairly soon with a guy that we we're gonna we're gonna try and delve into the genetics of this mm. at, a, at a really fine level. I'm hoping to, to kind of work on this a little bit this year. Yeah. So the next guy shows some examples of stuff. This was stuff that I produced in in my kitchen. Um, so cool. we've got Mediapora, we've got a uh, Liriopes, Miracada, and Tenuous, and these are the splices going through. And then this this next one is the sort of the last one I've been, and this is why I'm continually working with this with the Acropora muricata from from uh, home. I'll, I'll at some point I'm going to write up an article on this. So I've got a green genotype and I've got a blue genotype, yeah. and because I'm working with those two individuals, and you can create the chimeras, you end up with these insane colours where they're expressing both genetic entities within. The single individual that's so crazy the next, that's really cool <laughs> the next the next thing I'm, I'm i'm trying to do is grow these out and then spawn these and start playing with the spawn of these mm -hmm. um to to, to see but uh, again thinking about the potential of the future of the industry if you can start understanding the underlying mechanisms of this mm -hmm. then splice corals become designer bred corals for yeah. for the industry and you know, a lot of my research and our work at the Coral Spawning Lab, you know, we, we develop the tools and the fundamentals of this. We're not, it's not really what we're about. We're not, we don't sell corals. We don't, we don't work on this. But I think by developing the tools, there are lots of places that, that will pick this up and, and move yeah. this forward um, over time. And I think it's pretty exciting, really. It's uh I personally would always advocate this should be done in Indo, this should be done in Australia, so that it it provides increased uh, value to their resource. So it's something that you know I'm hoping to continue working with with the trade at source mm -hmm. um, because I think there's there's great potential and it keeps the industry healthy and and prosperous for for both the reef for the community that rely on the reef, but also the trade as we as we move forward. Yeah, definitely. I see this as a big part of the future of the hobby. And if we do ever 
you know, lose getting corals from overseas, that injection of new corals coming in, like we're going to look to things like this to get new variants. And, and it kind of seems pretty endless. If you took all the corals that we had in the hobby, in captivity, yeah. just think of the combinations, like just based on what we already have, you know. 100%. Yeah. And you, and you can start thinking about the legacy corals that, that have, you know, your names to them. Mm -hmm. You can then start. You start creating the love charts of uh, the Paletta Pictures. Yeah. And... yeah, totally. <laughs> it's just, it's going to go wild. Yeah. I think it's, it's cool. Well, I can see myself getting deep into this in the next few years. You know, now that I, I think, you know, seeing those cross sections and kind of what to look for, um, maybe predicting when a spawn's coming up. I think for me, probably the difficult side is going to be setting up you know, a safe system to kind of have them settle in and keep them like you have this whole urchin thing and that adds this other set of complexity. But, you know, there's other ways to keep your, your rock really clean, too. But yeah, yeah, the not to put you off, the the spawning is the easy part. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> so so it, 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 all the stuff that comes after it is when the when the really hard work kind of mm. kicks in. But it it, it obviously it can be done and and uh that's not to put people off but it is it's a lot of work and it's a lot of specialism yeah but that's you know that's what people in this industry are so amazing at innovating and yeah. are putting just such an awesome passion into things so definitely yeah there's a there's a lot um i think a lot from the hobby side and i like you know talking to you where you're kind of bridging that that gap to the the science like we we kind of i think acknowledge like each other's learning and knowledge because you know we've spent so much time with our hands in these tanks working directly with coral you know like and and 100 percent, the knowledge in the in the hobby industry far outstrips the scientific um the scientific industry from from blue fingers just being yeah. able to keep corals just being able to walk past a tank and just instinctively a glance out the side you know exactly something's right something's wrong and it's just because we're doing that every single day yeah. of our life yeah that, that you just you get this innate understanding sometimes we don't understand the underlying mechanisms that's going on with the coral necessarily but do, you don't need to understand absolutely everything yeah um, to progress things forward um and it's something you can't teach very easily that that innate understanding yeah. that is something that we, we're certainly understanding for the coral sporting lab so part of that people buy the systems and we provide training and and a coral husbandry training it's a really important part mm -hmm. to teach the blue fingers of making the whole thing work yeah. you know a system is one thing you know we, we can build systems but it's how to use that as a tool to leverage the best output from yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. There's kind of like this coral whisperer thing that people that get really successful in the hobby just know how to look at a coral or or a polyp and kind of have a have a sense of its health and maybe be able to start troubleshooting and prob you know figuring out what's going on if it's not good. Totally, and the, and the fact that there are so much content of of podcasts like this and mm -hmm. you know it. it it's there's a wealth of information out there and it's so advanced now it's it's really exciting yeah it's awesome okay i feel like we should do a round we two because this has been the longest one i've ever done because i have some <laughs> sorry just, no i'm i'm happy 
Um, I have some basic methodology methodology stuff I'd like to go over with you, but maybe we can just do another another one sometime and just talk about that. Yeah, sounds um, sounds good. Yeah, because I wanted to talk about coral feeding and and uh, you know how you what your preferences for major elements and stuff like that. But I bet we could go another hour if we got into that. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds good. I am going to ask you the thought experiment question just as a final closing thing here. So uh, I always ask my guests this. You're familiar with Andrew Sandler's Polo Reef? Yep. Yeah. So if you had the financial means and say the life situation, would you do something? Would you do that would you, or how would you do it differently? Um, for me, I'm so passionate the fact that we are losing reefs. And mm. I, it, it, I, you know, I live in London. I don't have a coral reef on my doorstep. I would love to make sure that that my work makes a difference. So mm -hmm. I would very much focus on lots of in situ restoration work, training communities in low tech methods of how to apply this to their own reefs. Yeah. So, and I'm very passionate that I would, you know, working with local communities, indigenous communities, that's personally what I would yeah. do. Yeah. So if you had that you know, budget, that's where you would see that money and intention go. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Cool. And I think the all the spin-offs for the trade come as a result of doing that amazing yeah. work. All of this plus coral, all of the LPS spawning, all of that could come into the trade as a result of it. But you end up actually reversing some of the trends that we're seeing in the ocean, supporting local communities, developing alternative livelihoods. Those are the things that, that would drive me definitely yeah totally and i think um not to take anything against um polar reef i think systems like that inspire people to get into this hobby you know and and i think it's it's like the top level of something as a as an example of how far you can take this so i think it's awesome that it is a thing but i really really like and appreciate your answer yeah yeah cheers yeah Cool. Well, I want to say thanks for, you know, your time and everything you're doing is like super cool. And I'm sure my audience is going to be really stoked on this episode. So thanks so much. Well, thank, thanks for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll get you again soon. And uh, yeah, have a good night. Sounds good. Take it easy. Okay. Thanks, man. All right. We did it. Thank you for listening to this extended episode of Beyond the Reef with Dr. Coral Daddy himself, Jamie Craggs. And if you want to check out his website and sort of see some, a little more detail on the stuff they're doing, you can go to coralspawninglab.org. I will provide links to some of the resources and equipment that were discussed in this episode. Definitely keep an eye out in a few months for part two of this episode. We're going to get deep into his methodology. If you have any suggestions for future guests, uh, want to just ask us a question, make a suggestion, make a criticism, whatever you want to say, uh, feel free to reach out at beyondthereefpod at gmail.com. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and leave us a review. And if you're looking for high-quality aquacultured corals in Canada, please check us out at fraggarage.ca. Hope to hear from you soon.